Support for Breaking Walls is provided by our patrons. Become a show supporter at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. It's a cold, cloudy evening in New York City on Sunday, January 2nd, 1949. The clock has just struck 7 p.m. Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Jack Benny is airing in his usual time slot. However, he's now on for CBS instead of NBC. Ladies and gentlemen, today marks Jack Benny's first program on the Columbia Broadcasting System. So let's go back a couple of hours and pick up Jack and Mary on their way to the studio. Rochester is driving. <laughs> Not so fast, Rochester. Don't cross the double line. Look out for that car. What's the matter with you? I'm driving as carefully as I can, boss. Well, just watch it, that's all. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack, calm down. Don't be so nervous. I'm not nervous. Then stop pacing up and down on the running board. (laughs) When William Paley signed Jack Benny in November, he'd convinced sponsor American Tobacco to make the jump to CBS by guaranteeing that CBS would pay the cigarette giant $3,000 per week for every ratings point lost after the migration. It's the first time my program will be heard in Alaska. The move signaled that Paley was intent on not just equaling Benny's audience on NBC, but growing it. In December of 1948, Benny's last month on NBC, his program rating was 25.8. His first episode rating for CBS, 28.3. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack, why should you be worried? You must have a million dollars down in your vault. I know, but I don't want to break up the serial numbers. (laughs) It was the most listened-to program in the United States. As for NBC, tonight we'll find out what happened next. Rochester, I don't want to have an accident on the way to the studio. Now slow down. I'm only going 12 miles an hour. (laughs) Don't give me that. What does it say on the speedometer? Made in 1899. (laughs) Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 111. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we resume our miniseries in January of 1949. CBS is now the nation's number one network, and NBC is left to come up with programming answers. We'll focus on the shows they launched in the winter, spring, and summer of 1949. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Benny Goodman and Helen Forrest's version of Taking a Chance on Love, originally recorded in 1943. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham 
the new historical fiction audio drama, set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to BurningGotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at Patreon.com slash TheWallBreakers. I freelanced exclusively here in Chicago for the, the... I was here for a decade with two, two and a half years out, maybe. I worked GN mm-hmm. and Q and BBM, mostly those three. And it just kept you so busy because there was so much activity here in town. Then. Did you ever get caught by the bridge being up? Only on one or two occasions, but I did. <laughs> but <yeah>. you did. <laughs> and didn't, actually what happened was I didn't make the repeat at CBS. Mm-hmm. I was coming across and didn't make the repeat of Road of Life. And I thought I was going to lose my job as a result of it, but they understood. That was a standard problem or excuse, I think. A little of each. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. And now, Robert Trout with the news, direct from the NBC Newsroom in New York, presented by Pillsbury. If you have a man you want to please, Network Radio opened 1949, fresh off its 14th consecutive year of record earnings. Total network revenue exceeded $210 million, and total national radio revenue was more than $560 million. It was this record revenue that launched the TV era. There were now nearly 1 million TV homes, up almost 450% from 1947. 33 new TV stations took to the air in 1948. Another 49 would launch in 1949. On January 9, 1949, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Robert Trout took to the air on NBC with the latest news from Pillsbury. War, violence, and death stalked Palestine through 1948, and in the first week of 1949, it's growing worse. Ralph Bunch, the American who's been acting as U.N. mediator for the Holy Land ever since Count Bernadotte was murdered there, left New York for the Mediterranean island of Rhodes a few hours ago. There, on Rhodes, he hopes to work out an armistice that will end the war between Jew and Arab. For those members of the UN hoping 1949 would bring about a resolution to the Middle Eastern crisis, January was a difficult time. While a new ceasefire in the Arab-Israeli war went into effect, war now seemed likely between Israel and Great Britain. military operations in the Negev desert and the Egyptian border, and so no one seems to know just how the UN is going to investigate. In answer to the shooting down of the RAF planes, Great Britain is sending stronger forces to the Middle East, including an aircraft carrier and a cruiser that have been in different parts of the Mediterranean. But Britain denies that rumor that the British Consul General in Haifa has advised all British subjects to leave Palestine. That one is not true. On January 7th, five British Royal Air Force reconnaissance planes were shot down by the Israelis near Rafa. The next day, the British Air Ministry instructed their aircrafts to regard any Jewish aircrafts encountered over the Egyptian territory as hostile. Israel next made an official protest to the UN concerning British forces and their recent landing at Aqaba in Jordan. Israel considered this a hostile act. To a good start in the Middle East. Whatever difficulties this year may bring to the Soviet Union, the Russians should be able to overcome them with new inventions. 
According to the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Leningrad today, the Russians are very good at inventing things. They invented the airplane long before the Wright brothers took to the air. They also invented propellers for ships. On January 5th, President Harry Truman gave his State of the Union address to Congress. He put forth an ambitious set of proposals known as the Fair Deal. They were to continue New Deal ideals in the Cold War era. The USSR claimed the New Deal was a smokescreen and that American citizens would see no benefits to social welfare in the U.S. No improvements in social welfare in the United States. But the Democratic leaders of Congress in Washington think that most of Mr. Truman's program will become law all right. Senator Scott Lucas of Illinois, who will be the new majority leader on the Democratic side, says he's busy with the new labor law to replace Taft-Hartley. Truman had his hands full. On January 7th, Secretary of State George Marshall resigned due to health concerns. The president named Dean Acheson as his successor. On January 10th, Truman would submit his annual federal budget to Congress. It called for the expenditure of a peacetime record of $42 billion and a projected deficit of $873 million. The president said this would become a surplus by raising taxes. What will happen to America's relations with China with the new Secretary of State, no one can be sure. The story today in Nanking is that China's staggering government has now asked Soviet Russia to take part in that attempt to stop the terrible Chinese Civil War. And now for Pillsbury, here is Arthur Gary. Thank you, Bob Trump. If you were listening to this NBC News report at 1.30 in Los Angeles and looked outside your window, you would have seen snow, a major cause for concern. A freak four-day snowfall deposited almost a foot of snow on the San Fernando Valley. It wreaked havoc on citrus growers. This particular transcription came from NBC's WMAQ in Chicago, where the station break announcer was Mike Wallace, who'd go on to become a famous game show announcer, and later, the host of 60 Minutes. Brought to you by Pillsbury, greatest name in flour. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. WMAQ and WMAQ-FM, NBC in Chicago. Here is your early evening lineup for fine entertainment. Listen to the Ozzie and Harriet show at 5.30. At 6 o'clock, it's time for Horace Heights' popular youth opportunity program. And remember to listen for Phil Harris and Alice Faye at 6.30. Keep tuned to this station for your favorite Sunday shows. The announcer's lounge was a room, I would say, it's just a big, big, comfortable room with a lot of leather chairs around it. And when I used to come in for the late news on WMEQ, the air edition of the Chicago Sun-Times, Dave Garraway and Hugh Downs, who were on staff there, each of them, both announcers, and then Garraway would do his, his late-night disc jockey show mm -hmm. that really made David's reputation. Downs would sit there waiting to do station breaks each night, and they had one of those huge Webster's Dictionaries that's on wheels, and they would play a game at a dollar a throw. One would give the other a fellow that he, a word that he thought that the other guy could not define. And the fact of the matter is that Downs knew more than, <laughs> than <laughs> Garraway did. But that's what they used to do night after night after night. And everybody was persuaded they knew that Dave Garraway had a fine future. But Downs, never make it. Never make it. And as you can see, he never he made it. Didn't do it, right? <laughs>
the NBC Theater presents... Screen Directors Guild Assignment, Production Stagecoach, Director John Ford, Stars John Wayne, Claire Trevor, Ward Bond. This is the Screen Directors Guild production of the United Artists motion picture classic, Stagecoach. Starring John Wayne, Claire Trevor, and Ward Bond. And introducing the director of the film, John Ford. That Sunday evening at 8.30 Eastern Time, NBC gave its first answer to what audiences could expect with the departures of Jack Benny and Edgar Bergen. The NBC theater debuted live, coast to coast from Los Angeles, with an adaptation of Stagecoach. It starred John Wayne, Claire Trevor, and Ward Bond. It was directed by the legendary George Marshall. The NBC Theater is proud to welcome the president of the Screen Directors Guild and the eminent director of such films as Variety Girl, The Perils of Pauline, and Tap Roots, Mr. George Marshall. Thank you, and good evening. This is the first performance of a series of Screen Directors Guild productions. <coughs> in which the directors will personally bring you their favorite film assignments, along with the stars who created the original roles. Tonight, your director is John Ford. John, if you remember, is the winner of five Academy Awards, the guiding hand behind such great pictures as The Informer, <coughs> How Green Was My Valley, and, of course, Stagecoach. You're on the set, John. Thank you, George. <clears throat> and good luck on our... First production. Stagecoach is ready to roll. The last time I made that crack was about 10 years ago. <laughs> and I first had the opportunity of putting on film as Romance of the West. For the cast, the picture offers an array of colorful character types, ripe for the actor's talents. Now the story and the cast are united again. Here is Stagecoach with John Wayne as the Ringo Kid, Claire Trevor as Dallas, and Ward Bond as Doc Boone. In 1885, the stagecoach was the only means of travel on the American frontier. And in those days, no name struck more dread into the hearts of travelers than Geronimo, leader of the warlike Apaches. This, folks, is a story of a party of people who traveled from Tonto to Lordsburg by stagecoach in 1885. It's a story still told by the Indians. Stagecoach was filmed in 1939 and noted for being John Wayne's breakout performance as the Ringo Kid. In the, land of Arizona, the screenplay by Dudley Nichols was an adaptation of The Stage to Lordsburg, a 1937 short story by Ernest Haycox. The film follows a group of strangers riding in 1880 on a stagecoach through dangerous Apache territory. Among them are Dallas, a prostitute, the alcoholic Doc Boone, pregnant Lucy Mallory, and whiskey salesman Samuel Peacock. 
The Ringo Kid has broken out of prison after hearing that his father and brother had been murdered by Luke Plummer. Buck tells Curly that Ringo is heading for Lordsburg and, knowing that Ringo has vowed vengeance, Curly decides to ride along as a guard. Ringo and Dallas soon fall for each other. Well, that's how it is, folks. Geronimo's Apaches are on the warpath up ahead, burning every ranch in sight. Hmm. Then the question before the party assembled in this stagecoach is, shall we continue? I say yes. Continue. But Mrs. Mallory, should you be traveling in your condition? My husband is in Apache Wells with his troops. I want to be with him when our baby arrives. Madam, I am a gambler, and I admire and respect a bold gamble. But aren't you gambling with a life besides your own? Oh, I forgot to tell you, Mr. Hatfield. We're getting a cavalry escort for his Apache Wells. That settles it. I'm going on. Count me in, of course, Buck. All right. I'll go find my shotgun guard. You don't have to go no further, Buck. What? Curly! Well, <laughs> doggone. How are you, Sheriff? Fine, thanks. And I'll be riding shotgun up next to you this trip, Buck. You? What for? The Ringo kid escaped from prison. I'm looking for him. The fellow who shot Jed Michael dead? I hear he's heading for Lordsburg to shoot it out with the three plumber boys. So I'll be right up there next to you, Buck, all the way to Lordsburg. There she comes. Top of the hill now. There comes the stagecoach. Better stand back a bit, Doc. Yeah, stand Stand out of the road there, Dallas girl. Thanks, Doc. Hail the stagebrush chariot. Doc, Doc, why do I have to leave town? Because, because all these women here say I have to. I don't want to go to Lordsburg. No more do I, Dallas. But you are a lady somewhat too hospitable to gentlemen. And I am a doctor somewhat too hospitable to spirits. We girl are the dregs of Tonto. They send us from their midst. Come, Dallas, be a glorified drag like me. Oh, oh, hi there, Buck. You have acquired two more eager passengers. The engines are rising, Doc. I thank them for that mark of respect. <laughs> Tell them they may be seated now. Enter, Dallas. Thanks, Doc. Take your place beside the other lady. Then forward, on to Lordsburg! What's you driving through this canyon, Buck? Well, I aim to be hard to shoot at in case Geronimo's Apaches are in these hills. I'm with you, Buck, the law. But that don't make me bulletproof. Down, oh, kingdom high. Here she comes, Apaches. Keep your shirt on and stop the coach. It ain't Apaches. There's someone up ahead blocking the road with a rifle. Ho, ho, ho. Here he comes, whoever he is. What? It's the Ringo Kid. That's right, Buck. Hiya, Curly. Ringo. Didn't expect to find the sheriff riding shotgun. I was heading for Lordsburg. Same as you, Ringo. Well, my horse went lame, so you got another passenger. I'll take that rifle first, Ringo. That's so, Sheriff. You're under arrest. The murderer, Jed Michael. Sorry, Curly, but this Winchester here says different. Sorry, Ringo. But if you look back up the road a piece, you'll see our escort of United States Cavalry coming up. 
Oh. I'll take that rifle now, Ringo. Sure, Sheriff. But you better hold on to it. You may need it before we get to Lordsburg. Thanks. You can get into the coach now. Much obliged, Sheriff. Get going, Buck. Yep. Shoot it. Yep. You're the famous Ringo kid, huh? My friends call me Ringo. Right name's Henry. Hmm, Henry? Why, I remember you. Say, I fixed your arm when you was just a little sprout. He was no higher than a quart of bourbon. Now, that was my kid brother broke his arm. You did a good job, too, Doc. Even if you was drunk. Well, thank you, son. How's your brother now? He was murdered. Oh, no. Him and my dad. By the three plumber boys. Well, good luck when you get to Lordsburg, son. Thanks, Doc. Mrs. Mallory, you're tired. Would you like to rest your head on my shoulder? No, thank you. Mr. Hatfield, would you mind if I sat over on your side of the coach? Not at all, ma'am. Excuse me. Yes, of course. Right here, Mrs. Mallory. Thank you, Mr. Hatfield. Hmm. I must have the plague, huh, Dallas? You? Oh, no, it's not you. Have a drink, Hotfield? No, thank you. No, thank you, he says. <laughs> have a drink, Doc? Yes, thank you. You're not going to move away from me, are you? No, Ringo. Well, I guess I can't expect to break out of prison and into society in the same week. Shh, she'll hear you. Yeah. I guess I'm pretty dumb for sitting down beside a lady like you, Dallas. A lady? Thanks for not moving. Oh, don't, don't, please. Why are you looking at me like that? Ain't I seen you someplace before? No. NBC no, theater no, creator Don W. Sharp believed writing was the most important factor in a radio show. Claire Trevor was both a film and radio veteran. She carried this opening broadcast. The sound effects were excellent and Harry Russell led a lush orchestral arrangement. I can't. Out of ammunition. Why have Buck and Curly stopped firing outside? Buck's hit. Curly's empty, too. This looks like it. No! No! I have only three bullets left. That's enough. The Indians won't get you or Mrs. Mallory or the baby. No. No, they won't. Listen! Get out! No, listen! It's a bugle! Cavalry from Lordsburg! The Apaches are breaking! They're running away! Glory, glory! How's that feel? Dead. Glory, glory. Well, good night, Ringo. This is... Is this where you live in Lordsburg? I told you. I warned you. I told you you didn't know me. This part of town is no place for a nice girl, but... But it's all right for me. Now say goodbye, Ringo. Say goodbye. I asked you to marry me, didn't I? I'll never forget you asked me. Now go on back and wait for me in the stagecoach. Where are you going? 
Business for the plumber boys. I'll just take a slow walk down Main Street and see what happens. Dear Lord, this stagecoach don't pass much for a church, but, but I'm praying to you here. Please, Lord, it's three to one against Ringo out there, and the plumber boys are dead shots. <laughs> Awful dead shots, Lord. <laughs> like I was saying, Lord, it's two to one, Lord. <laughs> He's all I got, and all I ever want. So please, dear Lord, please let me have him back. Please, please, please. Oh, carry me back to the Lord. Who, who's that out there? Yeah. You heard? No. I prayed for you. I prayed. You did good. Let's get out of here then. Escape. Don't have to anymore. Before he cashed in, Luke Plummer confessed he killed Jed Michael. Yeah. You're free? Yeah. And they didn't even hurt you? Dead shots like the Plummer boys? Deadest dead shots you ever saw. Oh, Ringo. Dallas, what are you crying for? Nothing's happened. Thus the story of those brave men, riders of the flying wagon, in the land of Arizona, where Geronimo was chief. In the great land in the desert where the flying wagon galloped, that the white men called the stagecoach, bringing brave men to the West. Our stars will return in just a moment. The NBC Theater has presented the Screen Directors Guild production of Stagecoach, starring John Wayne, Claire Trevor, and Ward Bond, and introduced by John Ford. In the weeks to come, the Screen Directors Guild will bring you Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. The program was meant to rival CBS's Lux Radio Theater. There was just one major issue. By 1949, the air was full of similar-sounding film adaptation shows, and none rival Lux. Meanwhile on ABC, Stop the Music's popularity was soaring. NBC moved Fred Allen up a half hour to 8 p.m. and shifted the NBC Theater to 9 p.m. to avoid the game show. Allen lost nearly half his audience in a single month. stagecoach itself and that great fund of memories known as the past. 
And speaking for the Guild, I'd like to express our gratitude to the National Broadcasting Company for the opportunity to better acquaint the public with the work and role of the screen director. Take it away, John Ford. Well, how do you hardy frontiersmen like pioneering in an NBC studio <laughs> instead of the badlands of Arizona? <laughs> Very much. You know, just the memory of that dust is enough to send me running home to wash my hair. Pappy, this is wonderful. Mean wonderful? What do you mean? Well, no getting up early in the morning and arguing with a horse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's wonderful that the screen director is being honored like this. He's the fellow who really makes the movie. Claire. As for us actors and actresses, well... well where would we be without you, Pappy, and others like you? That's right. You taught us our business. That's all I can say. Thanks. They're talking about wonderful things. It's a wonder that Pappy here hasn't yet displayed his fine, tyrannical <laughs> hand. How do you do? Is that so? War, John, now look. As long as we're speaking about fine, tyrannical hands, look... Are we going to do this again? Because if so, uh -oh. I'd like to take you folks... Uh -oh. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Huh? You'd have something to say about it. We had that same trouble ten years ago. That's right. Hey, you can't you Now, look, John, don't you remember? This is radio. There are no retakes. Good night, everybody. By March, Stop the Music's rating would reach 17.6, while Allen's fell to 9.4 and Sam Spades fell to 11.3 on CBS. It signaled that indeed, there was a new sheriff in town. Peter Leeds, Horace Murphy, Norman Field, Dan Riss, Ken Carson, and Eddie Fields. Tonight's story was adapted by Milton Geiger, and original music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Production was under the supervision of Howard Wiley. Your announcer, Frank Barton. John Wayne can soon be seen in John Ford's Argosy production, Three Godfathers, and Claire Trevor appears in the soon-to-be-released Amusement Enterprises picture, The Lucky Stiff. Ward Bond is currently appearing in the Victor Fleming production, Joan of Arc. Listen again next week when the NBC Theater presents... Screen Directors Guild Assignment, Production Let's Live a Little, Director Richard Wallace, Star Robert Cummings... By the time the NBC Theater debuted in the ratings in the fall of 1949, it mustered only a 4.5. Overnight, NBC's decade-long Sunday night rating stronghold was over. Don't miss an hour now of America's favorite music, old tunes, and new hits over most of these stations. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. After ages in which nature had maintained the barriers of time and distance between men and nations, radio eliminated them and enabled man to send a whisper around the earth. There is something tremendously inspiring to all of us in the RCA family in launching a new service whose purpose is constructive into a world where destruction is rampant. We have all been impressed of late by the ease with which things can be destroyed compared with the skill and the labor that go into their making.
If head of RCA David Sarnoff hoped Benny and Bergen were the end of the NBC exodus, he was sorely mistaken. During Benny's 1948 fall negotiations, Benny mentioned to William Paley that if he jumped to CBS, he could quote-unquote bring the boys with him. Several top NBC stars had long been angry with their treatment. Bing Crosby, then on ABC with Philco Radio Time, was next to jump. Red Skelton, angry with being moved from his Tuesday time slot, was signed with CBS by the end of January. Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, with their ratings cratering, first brought their children David and Ricky onto the program, and then at sponsor International Silver, transferred their show back to CBS in the spring. Their stay on NBC lasted just 26 weeks. Next up were George Burns and Gracie Allen. They'd leave NBC in the fall. Jim and Marion Jordan of Fibber, McGee, and Molly, NBC's highest rated show, were also now connected to CBS. While they remained on NBC, it was Fred Allen who made the latest flippant remark on air during his January 23rd show. Allen had long been the ire of NBC management. Next week, our guest will be Rudy Valley, and next week, I will still be on this network. No other comedian can make that statement. <laughs> Paranoia was abundant. A special NBC affiliate meeting was called at the end of February in Chicago to explain the network's tactical plan. Top executives advised the stations that the lavish investments in talent by CBS were economically unsound, and that NBC would soon embark on a vigorous campaign of program development. It would give chances to rising stars. Their affiliates had no cause to worry. The AM network broadcasting schedule was near maximum financial development. And it didn't matter anyway. Advertisers would soon be withdrawing their radio budgets to put more capital into the new medium, TV. David Sarnoff had been publicly championing television since the 1939 World's Fair. On April 30th, the National Broadcasting Company will begin the first regular public television program service in the history of our country, and television receiving sets will be in the hands of merchants in the New York area for public purchase. A new art and a new industry which eventually will provide entertainment and information for millions, and new employment for large numbers of men and women is here. There was a massive flaw in his logic. Sarnoff thought consumers would buy TV sets simply to own one. He failed to realize that people turned on radio and TV sets because of superior programming, something CBS now had in spades. On Tuesday evenings, NBC programmed their top TV show, Milton Berle's Texaco Star Theater, opposite their top radio shows, Bob Hope and Fibber McGee and Molly. Hope's rating fell under 20 for the first time. The same happened to Jim and Marion Jordan the following year. In January of 1949, Milton Berle had an unheard of TV rating of 79.6. Both CBS and NBC were gobbling new affiliates as fast as they could.
Say, uh, Jerry, all of us out here saw you on the Bob Hope Bing Crosby uh, Olympic marathon. Was that a lot of work? There was no work. We both went on cold. We didn't plan on being on the show until the day of the show. There was no rehearsing. We went on cold and did whatever we felt like. You mean you did that whole thing without a script then? The whole thing was ad-libbed. You know, it looked at one time as though you were about to pull off Crosby's toupee. Is that right? If he stood there, I'd have pulled it off. <laughs> it's the new, the great, the different, the Martin and Lewis show. The National Broadcasting Company brings you the new Martin and Lewis show. Our guest tonight, Lucille Ball, and featuring Eileen Woods, Flo McMichael, Dick Stabile and his orchestra, and starring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. As part of NBC's programming development, $1.5 million was allocated towards new shows. The first major signing was Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. The two had become a smash hit in clubs across the country. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis are two young men who, overnight, have become the nation's comedy hit. But let's get on with the show. We take you now to the apartment of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, where we find the boys getting ready, somewhat nervously, to go to the NBC studios for their first radio show. There's a tree in the meadow with a stream drifting by. Answer the phone, Jerry, I'm tying my tie. Okay, Dean, there's a tree in the meadow with a stream drifting by. I could never be a big singer like Crosby. Well, why not? I sound too much like Dean. <laughs> oh, it must be NBC again. What cowards we are. Why are we afraid to do our own radio show? After all, how big an egg can we lay? How big? Well, if we took a large hen and got it to hold back for two years... All right, Jerry, all right. (laughs) We've been acting like two frightened mice all day. We've got an ironclad contract to do the show. We've got to talk to NBC sometime. You're right. I'm not a frightened mouse. Answer the phone. Oh, come on, Jerry, you answer it. Hey, uh, Jerry, how did you and Dean get together originally? We started in Atlantic City six years ago. I was doing a single, and they wanted another act, and I recommended Dean because he was my pal, and he was a big hit, and we wound up doing a double. We still don't know how it worked, but we're on radio this fall for Chesterfield again, and we're doing a big show. Do you ever have any trouble with the other members of the cast? Oh, we fool around a lot, but nothing I can put my finger on. Jerry, they are calling us. You know, uh, we know that uh, all of those little uh, sketches that you use and those little odd bits aren't written. What's your secret for being able to throw in all of that spontaneous humor? Well, we don't know. We just thank the good Lord that he gave us the ability to be able to uh, throw in all that stuff. Well, you certainly do a miraculous job of it. Well, thank you very much, Dean. We've certainly enjoyed having you with us. Dean. Yeah? I'm scared. Look, we've done all right so far. We shouldn't be afraid. We did all right in nightclubs, didn't we? Yeah, but those people pay $10 cover charge, so they had to like us. But at a radio show, the audience gets in free, and at those prices, they can afford to hate us. <laughs> because there's nothing cheaper than something that doesn't cost very much. I always say. 
Indubitably, but uh, come on, Jerry, get dressed. Okay, I shall wear my new sport coat, which the man said was good for town or country and just perfect for the beach. What is it, gabardine? No, wet sand. <laughs> In August of 1948, they made their Hollywood debut at Slapsy Maxie's. They were soon guest starring on Burl's TV show, and their Thanksgiving appearance on Elgin's special was heralded by the more established comedians as groundbreaking. On December 22nd, the duo recorded an audition with Bob Hope. NBC picked the series, marketing the team as the next big sensation in radio. In the lead-up to the premiere, Martin and Lewis appeared on the March of Dimes, the Chesterfield Supper Club, the Seal Test Variety Theater, and the Bob Hope Show, before finally debuting on April 3, 1949 with guest Lucille Ball. The team was concurrently guest appearing in a My Friend Irma film adaptation. Irma was one of CBS's top shows. NBC had to allow the duo to plug their CBS-inspired film on air. This could make us famous. Yeah, famous. We could even become important actors. Yeah, important actors. Our names in lights, celebrities, stars in pictures. Yeah, names in lights, celebrities, stars in pictures. I can see it all. Big hits in nightclubs. We're famous. Everybody wants us. Hal Wallace signs us for a Paramount picture. NBC signs us for a radio show. We flop. <laughs> Nobody wants us Hal Wallace won't speak to us Paramount hates us We spend our savings We can't get work We're tramping the streets Starving We stop and press our noses Against the bakery window Dean Why? I'm hungry <laughs> Tell me, Jerry Did uh, Whitaker Chambers Ever hide any papers in your head? <laughs> Well, it ain't my fault. I don't have my head with me all the time, you know. But the Martin and Lewis show was a flop. No sponsor was interested in advertising such a visual team in a sound-only medium. They switched broadcast locations from Hollywood to New York, and then back to Hollywood. They also brought in new writers and characters. Nothing worked. Okay. Hello? Why aren't you guys down here at NBC? They're going nuts down here. Oh, it's our agent. Well, it's not your maiden aunt in Minneapolis. Everyone's waiting to do the program You guys are messing up the whole thing Now listen, I can explain everything Good, start with you <laughs> Now listen, boys, don't ruin everything This radio show means a lot to us Your careers, my commission You think I don't care about the show? I do After all, I gotta live too I can think of a loophole in that argument <laughs> Ooh, how you aggravate me Okay, Abby, we'll be right down there we can't leave yet, Jerry. I gotta rehearse my number. It's a romantic number. I wish I had a girl to sing it to, you know, to get me in the mood. I'll be a girl if you'll promise to respect me. <laughs> sing to me. I'm a great movie star and a princess of far-off India. Really? What princess of India are you? Rita Hayworth. <laughs> you're... you're Rita Hayworth? But you're not even on the road to being a princess of India. Maybe I'm not on the road, but I'm sure following the right alley. <laughs> see, see, the idea of this gag, see, the idea of this gag is that, well, alley is an alley in the street, see? A-L-L-E-Y. But when you say alley, A-L-I, that's like the prince that is going to marry Rita Hayworth. It's all combined into one joke. And it's so funny, this kind of, look how they're staring at me. <laughs> Ah, Jerry, relax. Have faith in me. 
We'll do all right on the radio show. That's all right for you to say, but I haven't thought up any jokes to tell the people. Oh, you'll think of something. What about me? I haven't even rehearsed my song. I don't even know if I'm in good voice. Well, go ahead, sing. Give yourself a clue. Well, what are your plans after you finish the movie you're in now? Well, first we're going down to the Dallas Fair around September and do uh, for 16 days down there. Then we're coming back and do a picture around December, our own picture, probably called The Caddy. You know, it's a golf story. I can hear a lot of background noises. Where are you and Jerry speaking from now? Your dressing room? Yes, we're right now in our dressing room. What's the name of the movie you're working on now? Well, it's a little thing called Scared Stiff. It's about, well, uh, a few gangsters, and I think that I have shot someone, but I haven't. And we're going on an island, going to a haunted house, and uh, we have a couple zombies, and they scare the hell out of us. How do you guys get along with your writers? Well, they're drunk all the time. <laughs> so. <laughs> do you use the same writers for your movies as you do for television and radio? They're all right. They, yeah, we have our own writers on this script. It's a very good thing for both Jerry and I. We're always together in every scene, and we do a lot of, you know, all that crazy stuff. NBC pulled the plug after the September 6th broadcast. In the interim, critics panned everything about the My Friend Irma film, except Martin and Lewis, and the duo continued to be a smash at live shows. NBC brought the program back on Friday, October 7th, 1949, at 8.30 p.m. Thirteen additional weeks with no sponsorship ensued. The network claimed 14 sponsors wanted the duo as a TV show. But Dean and Jerry wanted to make it on radio first. Radio and TV life called them blind. They were a hit with all the live crowds. But something was missing over the air. Say, uh, Jerry, we've heard rumors that you're uh, working so hard that you're all worn out. How is your health? My health? Well, I left it at home today. <laughs> yeah, my health is fine now. My back is still giving me a little trouble, but physically I'm going to be very bad. <laughs> How old are you now, Jerry? I'm 26. They doubt if I'll see 27, but I'm going to have a ball until then. I know what you mean. <laughs> NBC seemingly canceled them for good on January 30th, 1950. I know you'll want my opinion of your rendition, and I cannot tell a lie. It was magnificent. <laughs> oh, well. Come on, let's go. Oh, not so fast. Let me take a look at you first. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow.
And now, Robert Trout with the news, direct from the NBC Newsroom in New York, presented by Pillsbury. You're a cake baker deluxe when you use the new Pillsbury White Cake Mix. Yes, you're sure to make big... As spring of 1949 began, five of radio's top ten programs aired on CBS, four on NBC, and one on ABC. Just one year prior, NBC controlled 13 of the top 15 shows on the air. The broadcasting landscape was shifting. And now, Bob Trout with the latest news. Another step in the East-West struggle in Berlin. The United States, Great Britain, and France have outlawed Russian zone money in the western zones of Berlin. Now the city's economy is split completely. Exactly one year after the Berlin conflict started, when the Soviet officials walked out of the four-power Allied Control Council, March 20th, 1948. Internationally, the Cold War in Berlin had grown tense. On March 19th, the East German People's Council in Berlin adopted a constitution. It called for the creation of a central government in unified Germany after the Allied occupation. It was meant to impede the establishment of a West German state. Meanwhile, Allied authorities in Germany declared the Deutsche Mark the sole currency of West Berlin. It made the East German Mark virtually worthless. Let them shake the hand which we've never refused to give them. The Russians announced today that they're sending some more German prisoners back to Germany. A big new repatriation, the Soviet announcement called it. Great Britain and the United States have been accusing Russia of breaking her promises to return all German prisoners before 1949. The last protest was made less than a week ago. Belgium's going to have a general election fairly soon. Prince Charles, the Belgian regent, will most likely dissolve parliament near the end of April and call for general elections several months before they're scheduled. The French people voted today on a clear and sunny Sunday, but these were local elections, interesting to the rest of the world, chiefly because they're expected to show whether the communists in France are growing stronger or weaker. In France, local elections were being held as the UN feared the oncoming growing communist sentiment in the Western world. On March 20th in London, a parade by members of Oswald Mosley's union movement was disrupted by violent clashes with communists. Ten policemen were injured, and 35 communists were arrested. As a result, the UK Home Office prohibited all political marches in the city for three months. In making a violent attack on the North Atlantic Security Alliance, British communist Pollitt told an audience in the Welsh minefields, the United States wants to use Britain as an atom bomb base, an unsinkable aircraft carrier, and he called on everybody who could hear him to repudiate the Atlantic Pact. These outcries of the Western European communists are being prominently printed in the official newspapers inside Russia, but no comment of any kind on the Atlantic Pact from the Soviet government. Today, all the Moscow newspapers printed the text of the treaty in full, something that's very unusual in Russia. Soviet composer Shostakovich left Moscow today, bound for the United States and the so-called Cultural Conference for Peace that opens Friday here in New York. It's not known what future musical composition Shostakovich has in mind, but he better not write any music that calls for Hawaiian guitars. On March 23rd in the Middle East, Lebanon and Israel signed an agreement to settle the international Lebanese-Palestine borderline and exchange prisoners of war. No mullahs for the commissars. A dispatch from Beirut, Lebanon and Israel have agreed on the terms of an armistice and they're going to sign it this coming Wednesday. Here at home, America's railways and the 16 non-operating railroad unions settled the dispute that involves a million employees and has been going on now for 11 months. In Washington, Ohio's Republican Senator Taft says if on July 1st there's a substantial government deficit, he may come out in favor of higher taxes. And here in New York, there are smiles on many faces. Spring arrives one hour and 15 minutes from now.
This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Originally, when I started doing the Morgan Show, there was no thought of doing anything like a Gerard character. I was really a utility man. That was one of the major kind of niches that I carved for myself in radio. Since you couldn't see what I'd look like, I played everything from 2,000-pound gorillas to little children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I played romantic leads, villains, gangsters, anything you could think of. And when I went on, Henry, when he was getting ready to do his variety show, he asked, Fred Allen, as a matter of fact, who I had worked for before, and a couple of other people. He wanted to get some utility people. And the one name, no matter who else they mentioned, they mentioned Jim Backus, and they mentioned Art Carney, and they mentioned Jack Lemmon was doing a lot of stuff like that. They would always mention my name, too, because I seemed to be able to do many dialects and different voices and change my voice and stuff. So he called me, and I had known him socially, but he never even thought of me as a, as, you know. And so I started doing dialect things and crazy screaming voices and little whispering kind of things and stuff. And then slowly this Gerard character was just another thing out of six or seven other things I was doing on the show. Mm-hmm. But it caught the fancy of the public. And then suddenly people like Neil Simon and Joe Stein who wrote Fiddler on a Roof and Plain and Fancy and Zorba and all those other, and a lot of movies, were writing for Gerard. Practically every well-known television picture writer at one time or another would write Gerard routines and give them to Henry, and then we would end up using them. I have always meant to apologize one way or another to uh, a bunch of the announcers around about. I once said that they were saying, here's Morgan, they shouldn't say it. And I got a lot of letters from guys. They were perfectly innocent and trying to be nice fellows. I didn't know it. I'm sorry, fellas. I didn't know what you're up against. I thought people were just playing around. I didn't know you were being decent. Henry Morgan began in radio as a page at WMCA in 1932. He held a number of jobs until October of 1940 when Mutual Broadcasting put him on live over WOR with a daily 15-minute comedy series. It was called Here's Morgan. Morgan claimed to care nothing for prestige. He quickly became known for his self-depreciating sense of humor and his willingness to battle with sponsors for their phony marketing ploys. He charged lifesavers with cheating the public by drilling holes into the candy. He offered to peddle the holes as Morgan's mint middles. The sponsor wasn't amused. Here's Morgan ran until 1943. The Henry Morgan Show? Eversharp, Eversharp Shake Injector Razors and Blades and famous Eversharp Precision Writing Instruments brings you the Henry Morgan Show featuring Bernie Green and his orchestra and a few surprises. Good evening, anybody. Here's Morgan. He was next nationally heard in the fall of 1946 for Eversharp Razors on ABC. But he was never able to crack a double-digit rating. Thank you. Well, vacation time's here again. That's the season of the year. When Eversharp dropped him in 1947, citing low listenership and declining sales, 
Morgan responded typically on the air. Did you know it's not my show. Their money all it's their razor. For two whole weeks, they can watch it rain in the mountains. <laughs> As a public service, we've established the Morgan Vacation Travel Agency. Now, Roley is the clerk, Anne is the customer, and I'll be hotshot. And we're open for business right now. First customer, please. Good afternoon. Yes? I would like to go away to a nice, refined place. I should have a hot time. <laughs> I see. Um, what are you interested in? The lake, the mountains, the seashore? Where there's lots of fellas. Uh, yes. Any special activities you're interested in? Yes. I mean, I like ball... The cast featured New York radio legends Art Carney. Florence Halep, Madeline Lee, and the just-heard Arnold Stang. Let's see now, there's lovely Camp Schmo. By 1948, Stang had become so important that Radio Life claimed it should be called the Arnold Stang Show. I came to New York from Chelsea, Massachusetts. Actually, I took a bus from Boston. But I came to New York because I didn't know that it was almost impossible to break into radio, you know. So I had sent in a postcard asking if I could be on the show, and they sent back one of those letters, you know, very personal kind of letter, Dear Sir or Madam, as the case may be, you know, next time you're in New York, I was nine, but the next time you're in New York, uh, if you come by, we will schedule an interview and an audition. So, of course, the following Saturday, I went to New York and, and took an audition, and I was going to be a very serious, dramatic actor, and they decided they found a new comedy personality. So they offered me a job, and I took it, and... Then I started to do other things. I went up and asked for a job on Let's Pretend, which I got. Other things came up, and I started doing things like Aunt Jenny's, True Life Stories, and whatever shows uh, they needed kids on. And I was doing all of them, and I went on Broadway and played the lead in a Broadway play, out of which I got a picture contract and went to pictures and started doing movies and radio in California. And that's the story of my life. The director of Lovely Camp Schmo is right in the next room, and I'll, I'll call him and he'll give you more information. Oh, um, Hot Shot. Yeah, Mr. Winners. Uh, Hot Shot. This lovely lady is considering spending her vacation at Lovely Camp Schmo. Ah, you're in luck, lady. We're getting a snappy crowd this year. No cornballs. <laughs> We got the activities all figured out for the season. Uh, like what activities, for instance? Well, in the morning, uh, you get your choice. Of what? Tennis, handball, or breakfast. <laughs> well, suppose I like handball and I like breakfast, too. You can have a cup of coffee on a court. Although Rave Shampoo picked up the series in January of 1948, ABC canceled it in June, and Morgan was off the air. Can't you have both? If you want, you can lay down in a shower. After Benny and Bergen left NBC, the network was looking to fill the comedy void. By the end of January, Morgan was negotiating with the network. In February, Radio Daily announced that Morgan would be inheriting the Manhattan Merry-Go-Round's time slot. The program would debut on March 13, 1949, with Fred Allen as Morgan's first guest. And here's the star of the Henry Morgan Show the show got sponsorship from Bristol Myers in July, but once again, Morgan failed to crack a double-digit rating. In the meantime, in February of 1950, NBC gave Morgan an additional 15-minute commentary program. Both were considered flops, 
and Henry Morgan was off the air for good in June of 1950. You were mostly working for Jack Benny, but you were not exclusive to Jack at, at, That's right. at any time? Virtually so. I did not have a contract that per se tied me down exclusively, but mm -hmm. in its application, it perhaps was an exclusive contract. And that was due to, in the later years to the fact that Jack's recording sessions or his on-camera TV appearances were not too predictable because he had other things going, particularly mm -hmm. his concerts mm -hmm. with his mm -hmm. violin. So the schedule for the radio shows and the schedule for the TV shows had to be governed ultimately by uh, his availability. So the rest mm -hmm. of us made our time available to him. So that excluded me particularly, as I recall, from doing a lot of other shows that were offered because I couldn't guarantee mm -hmm. delivery of myself. Night and day, at home or away, always carry Tums, T-U-M-S, Tums for the tummy. Tums, famous quick relief for acid indigestion, presents the Alan Young Show with Jim Backus as Hubert Updike. Alan Young was born in the UK and grew up in Canada. He got his radio start in 1944 on NBC as a summer replacement for Eddie Cantor. That autumn, ABC signed him for a new comedy. It debuted in October of 1944. The series ran for two seasons, first on Tuesdays at 8.30 against NBC's powerhouse comedy lineup, and then later on Fridays. It was considered a colossal ratings flop, yet Young was often thought to be a man about to make it big. NBC tried him in the fall of 1946 for one season with similar results. Young was then signed for the Jimmy Durante show in 1948, where he fared better. While still a Durante regular, NBC signed Young in December of 1948 to star in a new program. In an odd coup, Jack Benny's famed announcer Don Wilson was signed to pitch ads for Tums. Betty is still upstairs, so Alan is trying to start a conversation with her little brother, David. The girlfriend's kid brother can be a big help to a romance, so Alan is trying to get friendly with him. Well, David, <laughs> what should we talk about, baseball? The baseball season hasn't started yet. Yeah. Oh, uh, how about basketball? Don't like it. Uh, <laughs> ice hockey? Nah. Golf? Nope. <laughs> Well, let's face it, kid, we're down to women. <laughs> women? Bah. They do? I mean, no. How's things in, in general? <laughs> Look, I've had a hard day at school. Will you let me read my paper? <laughs> well, you're trying to be friendly, kid. After all, one of these days, I may be married to your sister. Say, what do you want to marry her for, anyway? She's nothing, just another woman. Yeah, but they make the best wives. <laughs> and if you want children, they're the West Coast distributors. <laughs> it's a monopoly. I still don't know what you see in that sister of mine. She gives me a pain in the neck. What do I see in her? Why, David, she makes my heart pump faster at the mere sight of her. The touch of her hand sends shivers through me, and a kiss starts a raging fire. Yeah, she gets on minors, too. You seem to understand. I love your sister. To me, she's the most beautiful girl in the world. Please, Mr. Young, you're talking to someone who has to look at her when she gets up in the morning. 
You mean Betty, pretty little Betty, doesn't look good in the morning? Oh, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. So what? I see her every morning and I still can't believe it. <laughs> oh, look, you're getting me a little worried here. Tell me something and answer me honestly. Okay. Uh, do you... Well, do you suppose in a few years Betty will lose her looks? Yeah, if she's lucky. It... <laughs> Kid, how can you say such things to me about your sister? Well... What's it worth to you if I give you the real lowdown? Oh, I get it. A quarter? A quarter? Are you kidding? Why, it takes at least a dollar just to get me to open my mouth. <laughs> I can't afford it. Tell you what, David, here's 35 cents. Talk through your nose. <laughs> the Alan Young Show debuted on Tuesday, January 11th, 1949 at 8.30 p.m. The cast featured Louise Erickson, Nick Stewart, Jim Backus, Hal March, and Ken Christie. Helen Mack produced and directed. Okay, here's the lowdown. Yeah. My father's paying me a dollar a week to discourage you. Oh, that's it. Then all that stuff about Betty was lies, just lies, huh? I should have known Betty couldn't be anything but beautiful in the morning. I can just picture myself married to her and seeing that little face opening its eyes in the morning and smiling sweetly at me. It gives a man strength to go out and do his job. Yeah, if you can look at that, you can handle anything. <laughs> I ought to take a ruler and beat your little... Well, gosh, you paid me for the truth and all shh, I was... Shh, here comes Betty. Thank goodness. Now I can finish reading my paper. Hello, Alan. I'm ready. Hiya, Betty. Oh, you look nice. Well, where should we go for a walk? Walking again? But, Alan, we went for a walk last night and the night before last and the night before that. I want to do something else tonight. Uh, just when we're getting good at it. <laughs> Alan, you never take me anywhere like other fellows. I'm getting tired of it. Oh, that's not true, Betty. Didn't I take you to Ciro's one night last week? But, Alan, Ciro's was closed that night. <laughs> sure. Who can afford to go there when it's open? The show debuted with a rating of 15, but fell every month after. By June, it was down to 4.8, and NBC canceled the series. Young then made the films Chicken Every Sunday and Mr. Belvedere Goes to College. But his greatest success came in 1961 when he began starring as Wilbur Post in the famed Mr. Ed. So he's well built and I'm not. And he's, he's, uh, see? Already I've run out of differences. Alan, you're taking me to Grauman's or I'm not going out with you at all. I have uh, what you call a theatrical trained voice, which sounds a little English, a little Southern. And Tallulah Bankhead came from Jasper, Alabama, and so she had Southern with a little of this. Anyway, I had a cold once on Lux, a very, very bad cold, and when I get a cold, my voice goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And this was the one that was starring Tallulah. And I had the first line and she looked up at the director Fred Mackay and she said darling you have got to be kidding <laughs> at, that point, at that point I said oh this is the easiest money I ever had and I left and was paid you know <laughs> I thought it very amusing I've been mistaken for her and Catherine Hepburn and everybody portions of the following program from Hollywood are transcribed hello there this is the entire staff of announcers in the Hollywood studios of the National Broadcasting Company. Under ordinary conditions, one announcer would be sufficient to introduce the program. But this is a special program, as you will presently see. 
Among those to be heard from will be George Murphy, Audie Murphy, Jane Russell, Jimmy Durante, Ronald Reagan, Hi Adirac, Dick Powell, and Henry Russell's orchestra and chorus. The next voice you hear will be that of Dick Powell. And here he is. Thank you, gentlemen, for that concerted introduction, and hello there. We're here this fine Sunday to ask you to join us in celebrating the birthday of someone all Hollywood regards as a wonderful person. Tomorrow is the 173rd birthday of Uncle Sam. Dick Powell was born on November 14, 1904, in Mountain View, Arkansas. He'd been an A-list crooner in the 1930s, starring in both musicals and comedies at Warner Brothers in Paramount. He was also the MC of radio's Campana Serenade. After several attempts, Powell changed his career in 1944 when he was cast as Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe, in Murder, My Sweet. The Lux Radio Theater broadcast an adaptation on June 6, 1945. There's nobody here, Marriott. This whole setup looks like a tryout, seeing if you obey orders. Let's pull around the corner and... I caught the blackjack right behind my ear and a black pool opened up at my feet. I dived in. It had no bottom. I uh, felt pretty good, just like an amputated leg. I don't know how much time went by. I forgot to look at my watch. But as I came to, I started to call for Marriott. Two weeks later, Powell was starring as Richard Rogue in Rogue's Gallery on NBC. The series was a summer replacement for the Fitch bandwagon. F.W. Fitch Company, makers of those fine Fitch products, presents Dick Powell as Private Detective Richard Rogue. In Rogue's Gallery. Rogue speaking. Well, I was suffering one of my regular attacks of rigor indolence last year when I decided to commune with nature in a gentle sort of a way. So I made a reservation at the L7 Dude Ranch out in the desert. When Fitch returned in the fall, Mutual Broadcasting picked up the show. It lasted for one season on Mutual before returning for a final 13 weeks on NBC. When part of the scenery walked up and took a poke at another part of the scenery. Simultaneously on film, Powell made Cornered, Johnny O'Clock, To the Ends of the Earth, and Pitfall. In December of 1948, wanting to get back into radio, Powell recorded an audition for a new CBS series called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. He was set to take the role when writer and director Blake Edwards called him to star in a new NBC series, Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Diamond answered his telephone with atrocious commercial jingles and was a master of the verbal put-down. His relationship with Lieutenant Walt Levinson was abrasive but affectionate, and he loved to rib Sergeant Otis. It premiered on April 24, 1949. Here's Dick Powell, transcribed as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. My name's Diamond, and 
like a lot of working people, at five o'clock in the afternoon, I get pretty anxious for six o'clock to roll around, especially if I haven't had a client for the last three days. But even if I don't expect anyone to drop in before six, I can't take a chance, so I stare out of my office window on 53rd Street just to kill time. I see the night starting to muscle in on the Broadway bright lights, and I wonder just how many prospective clients are out in the city. Who's getting in trouble? What kind of trouble? And will they come to Richard Diamond for guidance? Now, take the two hard-looking thugs in the downtown hotel room as they watch a pretty blonde hurriedly get into a flashy mink coat. They're going to need plenty of guidance. Where you going, Dottie? I got an appointment. Uh, don't you think you ought to stick around just in case the contact comes in? If it ain't here by now, it won't be until tomorrow. Now stop looking like a couple of anxious bloodhounds. Relax. Sure, Dottie, sure. Uh, but you really cannot blame us for being a little disquieted. <laughs> don't she look classy, Al? Hey, who are you going to roll tonight, doll face? Your grandmother. Oh, ain't she out of Alcatraz yet? Hey, I, I don't like no cracks about my family. Well, what are you going to do, Stan? People stop by the zoo every day. Yeah. Now, please, no legomachy. Yeah, no legomachy. Yeah. You keep running off at the mouth like that, baby, and you'll be spitting out all your teeth. Yeah, well, when you kick off, Stan, don't try to sell your body to science. I'll never get both heads in that bottle. Why, you... Please. Please. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit... Please. Yeah. Please. Leave us, Dottie. And, Stanley, you shut your big mouth before I shove my foot in it. We... Go on, Dottie. I think you had better make a hurried percolation. What? Beat it. Oh, Al, why didn't you let me mess her up a little? She's always acting like she's got a family background. I do not know whether her family had anything to do with it, but it is a very nice background to gaze at. Now shut your ugly face and let us start tailing her. Tailing her? What for? I think she is up to something. Yeah, well, sure she is, but I don't want to get booked as a peeping Tom. <laughs> Stan, you are a melon head. I think she is going to try a cross. Florida has not never been late with the numbers before. Yeah. You think she's going to pick up the bundle and skip? No. I just want to see what she does with her evenings. Oh, well, I can tell you that. Stanley, please, you arouse my irascibility. Oh, I'm sorry, Aloysius. Paper? Evening paper? Paper? Evening, Glenda. Oh, hello, Horace. Times. You look tired. Hard day at the office? I stayed home. My wife's swell. Mm. Here's the times. Yeah, thanks. Good night, Glenda. Good night. Papers? Evening papers? Have you got a light edition? Why, yes, right here, dearie. You got it? Yeah, in the purse. Put it down on the counter and look through the paper. Okay. Paper? Evening paper? What do you want me to do with the purse? Keep it till I meet you at the train. Sure, honey. Good to be working again, ain't it, Dottie? I gotta go. They usually got a tail on me. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Relax. We're in the chips. Paper! Evening paper! Uh, paper, sir? No, but I will take that purse. Purse? Oh, why, that nice young lady must have left it on the counter when she looked at the paper. Please, just extend your agent index and shove it over here. Why, I can't do that. He belongs to that young lady. Oh, look, it would make me very unhappy to have to shove all those nice old wrinkles around, but I am in need to possess one patent letter handbag. Now, if you will kindly move it to my approximate latitude, you old bat, we can dispense with all... Why, you poor excuse for a low-brow gun if... Madam. For two cents, I'd wrap a lead sap across your flat head. Well, hello, Glenda, hello. How's, oh. how's business? Oh, Officer Quine... Aren't you on a little late? <laughs> yes, uh, I've been changed to the six o'clock beat. Well, good evening, sir. 
Uh, yeah, lovely. Uh, good evening, officer. Say, haven't I seen you somewhere before? Uh, hardly. I reside in Flatbush. Well, thank you, Mother. I do not see anything I want. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> he doesn't see anything he wants. What does he think you're running? A, a drugstore there? <laughs> hey, Al, I saw a cop. Mm, I am proud of you, Stanley. Huh? Now let us hurry around this corner. What, you think that and the old dame are cooking up something together? Stop here so we can watch the old dame. Stanley, to put it in your words, yeah, I think they are cooking up something. Oh, you figure she slipped the old girl the numbers? Your perception astounds even my astute... Virginia Gregg was Richard's girlfriend, Helen. Ed Bagley was Lieutenant Levinson. In this episode from May 22nd, Betty Lou Gerson played the female heavy. Jack Crucian played one of the hoods. Stanley, stay here and await my return. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood, doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't get paid. That's right. right? Not sponsored. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938? I got gore. And, <laughs> and it was 13 weeks. A wonderful experience because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about that? Pretty, this kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was at least, I was a graduate of high school. I haven't got much time. I've got Officer Quine watching my paper stand. Officer Quine? You should be happy you aren't selling fruit. He's already got his thumbprint and every apple in Yonkers. Mr. Diamond, I found this purse. Ah, uh, found it, Glenda? Oh, you know me, Mr. Diamond. I'm going straight now. I remember a snake that said that once. He broke his back. Honest, I haven't been doing that kind of business since I got out. Well, what can I do for you, Glenda? I'm broke. Oh, it's not a touch. I want you to find the owner of this purse and return it. Why don't you give it to Officer Quine? Well, there's no money in it. And with my record, he'd sure run me in for purse snatching. No money, huh? Oh, no. No, I didn't touch a thing. Just uh, took a peek, maybe. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> a young girl left it on my counter. If you find her, you can ask her. I didn't touch a thing. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Oh, thank you, Mr. Diamond. Goodbye. Keep your nose clean. Oh, I will. She'd keep her nose clean, all right, in a glass of gin. I'd known old Glenda ever since she started working bunco rackets and got put away for two to five. I was sure she'd lifted the dough from the purse, but I opened it and went through it anyway. I was just kicking myself for telling her I'd try to dig up its owner when the door opened and an ugly-looking mug wearing alligator spats walked up to my desk. You should be ashamed looking in someone else's place. It's a bad habit, like not knocking on doors. Oh, it said on the door to come in. How long did you have to wait before someone came by to read it to you? May I please have the place? Oh, is it yours? Yes. Well, I didn't notice the wedges. Give up high heels? You are a very poor comic. Now, may I have the purse, or must I make you bleed? Oh, oh, it's like that. Well, sure, here it is. Thank you. <coughs> and something to go with it. <coughs> I caught him with one that made my arm feel good clear up to my shoulder. His eyes rolled back, and he went down faster than the celluloid collar on the flagpole. I looked at the black purse and started getting that lousy feeling again. I'd gotten into something, and it was beginning to smell already. So I called the 5th Precinct Police Station and an old friend, Lieutenant Levinson. Homicide, Sergeant Otis. Hello, Otis. Let me talk to the lieutenant. Is this Diamond? No, it's platoon number three of the Brownies, 300 strong. Now let me talk to the lieutenant. 
Uh, what are you going to do with all those tired jokes and you run out? Give them away to idiots. You want to start a collection? Oh, nuts. Lieutenant Levinson. Hello, Walt. Diamond. Oh, wait a minute. Otis. Otis. Yeah, Where'd you put the bicarbonate? In the top drawer, Lieutenant. Oh, uh, hold it a minute, Rick. Get me some water, Otis. Yeah, Go ahead, Rick. I can stand it for a second. Well, if you didn't get so excited, you wouldn't have to take that stuff. Here you are, Lieutenant. Never need this stuff until you call. Now, who's dead? Uh, nobody, but there's a guy in my office lying on the floor. He's dead. He's got to be. No, he isn't, Walt. I just belted him in the mouth when he tried to get rough. Oh. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's trying oh. to wake up. Groan for the nice policeman. Oh. You hear him, Walt? Okay, so some guy got tired and went to sleep on your floor. What do you want me for? Uh, hold it a second, Walt. He's getting a little too active. What did you do? I kissed him goodnight. What did you do that for? Well, I've seen him somewhere. I think he's wanted. Oh, well, hang on to him. I'll send the wagon down. The door will be open. I'll fix it so he doesn't get away. Wait a minute, Rick. Where are you going? Well, about five minutes ago, an old dame hands me a black patent leather purse and asks me to find the owner. Right afterwards, this cultured gorilla wanders in and says the purse belongs to him. Oh, what's in it? Nothing much. A compact, book of matches, and a handkerchief. Mmm, smells nice. No money? No. No, uh, I gotta stop by Helen Ashes for a minute, and then I'm gonna find out what makes this purse so valuable. Uh, say hello to Helen for me. Sure thing. Bye, Walt. Be a good boy. Goodbye. I got a rope out of my desk that I hung my socks on when I had time to wash them and tied the sleeping Garneth to a chair. I didn't know much about pocketbooks, but I knew someone who did, so I headed for 975 Park Avenue and a beautiful redhead named Helen Asher. Oh, good evening, Mr. Diamond. Good evening, Francis. Is Miss Asher in? Yes, sir. She's in the study. Shall I announce you? No, just dig up something that'll get me back on my feet. I'll let myself in. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Diamond. Yes, Francis? If you'll pardon me for saying so, sir, I just love the way you talk. Well, thank you, Francis. Eaton, 98. Majored in Sloyd. Oh, oh, my goodness, you're pulling my leg again. Anyone home? Rick, you got here. Hi. Hi. Well... Since when did you start carrying a purse? Like it? Matches my complexion. Oh, you idiot. Take a look. Whose is it? Mm, Got to find out. It's worth something. One guy already tried to get it the hard way. Cigarette? Oh, thanks. It's got some initials on it. D.K. There's nothing valuable in it. I know. That's what I can't understand. Got a match? Here's some in the purse. Thanks. Here. Hmm. Adams Hotel, flop house with sheets. Compact's never been used. My darling. Well, thanks. Oh, the perfume and the handkerchief, silly. It's my darling. Oh. Ah, oh, don't look so hurt. So are you. Well, come here. <laughs> Rick. Here's your drink, Mr. Dab. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's all right, Francis. I was just trying to convince your boss we should take in the wrestling matches. Why, Francis, you're blushing. Oh, <laughs> pardon me. Miss Asher's residence. On most of those shows, yes, I doubled other mm-hmm. parts, too. Maybe if an old no, charwoman came in or something, I'd do those. Did you often uh, use an alternate right voice then on these mm-hmm. shows? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Give us a charwoman's voice. 
Now? Sure. <laughs> well, you'd have to hand me a script and say, here, do her. Take some buckets. Yeah. And what do you want her in? Japanese? Swedish? Oh, you do the dialects. Jewish? Dialects and everything. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, somebody made a punchboard out of his chest, and I like you for a suspect. Now get down here. Wait a minute, Walt. Somebody shot him? Yeah. If that wasn't what killed him, he died of fright when he saw the bullets coming. Now, I'm not talking anymore till you get here. Make it ten minutes or I'll have a warrant out for you. Oh, swell. Rick, what's the matter? Oh, that crazy Walt Levinson's got me in line for a murder rap. I gotta go down and square myself. Murder? Rick! Yeah? I'll see you later, baby. But, Rick... I can't wait. I'll get back as soon as I can. If we were married, this wouldn't happen. Richard Diamond, private Rick, detective, would find murder. sponsorship with Rexall in April of 1950. Francis, Mr. Diamond forgot this purse. See if you can catch him. He's gone to Lieutenant Levinson's police station. Yes, Miss, I'll do my best. Rick just has got to stop this foolishness. He... Oh, how did you get in here? Who are you? I come in a back way, lady. Uh, where's the shamus? You get out of here. No, just, just relax, baby. One yell out of you and you get hurt pretty bad. What? Uh, where's the shamus? He went down to the police station. Okay. Where's the purse? I saw him bring it in. Uh, I don't know. Oh, come on, baby. Or do I shake it out of you? You, you stay away from me. You... Hood. Hood? Where's the purse? I told you I don't know. No, stay away. Okay. But you're making it tough on yourself. Stay away. You stay away from me. We grew up, he went to one high school, I went to the other, and we became friends, and we worked at Bullock's men's shop. We did... Jack Webb? Yeah. Sold clothes. Silverwoods, I'm sorry. Did I say Bullock's? God. And uh, he went in the Air Force, and I went in the Army. Jack Webb married a lady by the name of Julie London. I threw them their marriage party in San Francisco. She had just come out in a picture called Tap Roots. Cinderella lost a shoe and so she got a maid With lovely shoes a girl can't lose In gallon caps she'll raid Four miles to a gallon cap. Yes, gallon caps, the family shoe stores with the yellow fronts. The largest shoe chain in the West with stores from Canada to Mexico to serve the West. G-A-L-L-E-N-K-A-M-P-S Gallon Caps present Pat Novak for Hire. July of 1948, Jack Webb was 28 and bored. After emceeing the short-lived Jack Webb show and one out of seven for ABC in San Francisco, he'd collaborated with writer Dick Breen in the cult hit Pat Novak for Hire. Down here, a lot of people figure it's better to be a fat guy in a graveyard than a thin guy in a stew. That way, you can be sure of a tight fit. Early in 1947, Pat Novak's success took Jack Webb home to his native Los Angeles. It works out all right if your mother doesn't mind you coming home for Christmas in a box. Actress Lillian Bioff remembered that time. 
I remember Jack Webb before Dragnet. As a matter of fact, Herb Ellis was living in San Francisco at the time. He and Jack were very good friends. And when Jack was coming to Los Angeles, Herb called me and said, meet him at, I don't forget which studio, and audition for him. He's going to be doing a program called Pat Novak for Hire. And you remember the show? Yeah. So that's where I met Jack. I met Raymond Burr there. And a woman that I wonder if she's still around, her first name was Yvonne, a very, very low, sexy voice. Exactly. Is she still around? Yvonne Patey. Yeah. You remember the voice? Anyhow, that's, that's my recollection of Jack Webb at first. My name is Lee Underwood. I'll give you $300 to do something for me. With Novak still airing from San Francisco, Webb and Breen teamed up again for Mutual with Johnny Madero, Pier 23. It debuted in April and was Webb's first coast-to-coast show. If it were murder, I'd do it myself. Although it only lasted five months, it allowed Webb to work with some of the most talented people in Hollywood radio. He began to act in CBS's Escape and was soon doing bit parts for William Spear on Suspense. I promise nothing will happen to you. In July of 1948, Webb was back at it again with writer E. Jack Newman and Jeff Regan, investigator. You did Jeff Regan with Jack Webb. Very early on. Jack and I... Um, worked together at that time, we were frankly doing uh, another version of Pat Novak for hire. We used to do everything but get into fistfights over how things should go and so on. We're still very good friends. I see Jack now and then. We never did do anything in television together. Why doesn't he bother you? Because I bother back too fast. It aired on CBS's West Coast Network into December. However, after playing one hard-boiled P.I. after another, Webb was looking for a role he could really sink his teeth into. It's empty, don't worry. Did you ever write any dragnet for him? I must tell you how you can make some big slips in your life. Jack and I, after all of the fighting and arguing, we lived together, too. While we were doing Jeff Regan, Jack said, I got this great idea for a program called Dragnet. All right, it's your 300. You better go now. Yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that, and so on and so on, and I've got to, you know, I think I've got to deal with NBC, and I want you to do the audition. And I said, that's a terrible idea. I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> Relax, Patsy. You'll never learn to fall in love that way. That summer, Webb was cast as a forensic specialist in the film He Walked by Night. He became friends with the police technical advisor, Detective Sergeant Marty Wynn. Their conversations became the inspiration for a new police procedural, one that would become one of the most famous shows in radio and TV history, and turn Jack Webb into an American icon. Webb spent the entire fall doing his own legwork. He hung out at police stations, took night classes, and rode with detectives on house calls. I stopped in front of the place. It was a machinery company. I could see a light burning in the back. NBC skeptically greenlit an audition. They thought the idea sounded flat. Like with Richard Diamond, booze, innuendo, and shootouts were the spice that made detective shows interesting. To help secure the deal, Webb got cooperation from the LAPD. So long as he didn't go out of his way to portray the department in a negative light, they'd allow him to use closed case files. That's right, you make too much for a thief and not enough for a customer. In January of 1949, Jack Webb intimated to Radio Life that his days playing guys like Novak were almost over. His next character would be Joe Friday. Dragnet premiered coast to coast on Friday, June 3rd, 1949 at 10 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC. Ladies and gentlemen, 
The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet! Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. It was the first of its kind, a realistic, documentational portrayal of the LAPD at work. I was a big part of Dragnet. I did the original audition, Barton Yarbrough, do you remember that name? And Jack Webb and Charlie McGraw, bless his heart, he played a man by the name of Captain Ed Backstrand. I opened the show announcing it, introduced Jack, who introduced Bart, who introduced the captain. I closed it off. I, I took the show upstairs to a gentleman named Harry Bubeck, who was then the program director on the Pacific Coast, and a friend of mine who had worked in San Francisco. We kind of like gravitated down about the same time. He came to a permanent job. I came to walking the streets. And he bought the show. And that's how Dragnet went on the air. Jack did everything. He, you know, had boundless energy and paid enormous attention to everything. It was a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day job for him. And uh, he delivered something that we're all used to now, but then it was so startling and so new, it was incredibly successful. The same thing when it became a television show. Jack Webb has contributed a great deal to uh, both radio and television in technique and attitude, attack, everything, you know. And what looks old hat to us now was very fresh and new once, and, and it gave us all the guidance to do other things. NBC sustained production costs for the first 13 weeks during its summer run. By the time the seventh episode aired on July 21st, the show had found its rhythm. Barton Yarborough played Sergeant Ben Romero, and Raymond Burr was Chief Ed Backstrand. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You've been off duty two hours. You receive an emergency call from the chief of detectives. An entire block in the heart of your city is threatened with complete destruction. Your job, report at once. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, November 15th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were off duty reporting in on an emergency call. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 8.32 a.m. when I walked in the Spring Street entrance of the city hall. You Sergeant Friday? Yeah, that's right. Uh, take my elevator, Sergeant. It's the only one in service. All right. 
I'll run you up to 16. The chief's waiting for you up there. What's the pitch? Only one elevator in service out of 10? The place looks deserted. What's going on? Nobody in the building. All the office people have been sent home. Lots of trouble. Somebody declare a holiday? No joke, Sergeant. Big trouble. All right, you convinced me. What is it? Here we are. 16th floor. Over here, Fronty. Hi, Joe. Hello, Ben. You made good time. Came as soon as I got the call, Ed. Sorry to have to bring you back in. You worked last night, didn't you? Yeah, midnight to eight this morning. Sorry. Come on. Okay. What is it, Skipper? Why all the hush? Wait till we get inside. In here. Okay. Number one, let's keep our voices down. Yeah, all right. I'll make it as brief as I can. Every minute counts. What time you got, Friday? 8.33. All right, here it is. 55 minutes ago, a man walked into this building with a homemade bomb under his arm. If we don't release his brother from the county jail by 9 o'clock this morning, he says he'll pull the trigger on the bomb and blow up the whole building. He's kidding, Skipper. Who is the guy? Name's Vernon Carney. Here's his package. He and his brother have been in and out of jail since 1937. Small-time thieves. Yeah. Where's the FBI kickback? We had him once before, both of them. Brother's name is Elwood, serving a year for car stripping. And this two-bit thief is sitting here in the city hall with a bomb on his lap? That's right. In the next room. What kind of a bomb is it, Ed? You think he's bluffing? Could be bluffing, but the crime lab says no. Lee Jones from the lab get a look at it? Been in there twice. One end of the box is glass. Says you can't see much without a closer look, but you can't get near the guy. What do you want us to do? It's a volunteer job. You can take it or leave it. I won't order you to do it. How you want to handle it? You sure you want a piece of this one, Romero? No, he doesn't, Ed. He's got a family. Get me another single man. We'll give it a try. Wait a minute, Joe. What makes this job so different? Anytime we kick a door in, we never know what's on the other side. That's what makes it different. This time we do. No, you're not going to cut me out. Not the only time I know what I'm getting into. All right. Chandler's tried. Hannon, Davis, Watson, they've all tried. This guy, Connie, knows what he's doing. He's no pushover. But somebody's got to get that bomb away from him. Friday, Romero, it's your baby now. I looked at my watch. It was 8.36. We left Backstrand and started down the hall. If Carney was going to make good his threat to blow up the building by 9 o'clock, we had exactly 24 minutes to talk him out of it. Ben and I figured we'd better look him over first and then work out some kind of a plan. Maybe just talking to him would do it. Vernon Carney was sitting in a straight-back chair against the far wall facing the door. He was seated between two windows that looked out over the city. Along the left wall was a row of six wooden chairs. In the center of the right wall was a connecting door leading to the office where Backstrand had briefed us. The door was locked on both sides. Just off center and favoring the left of the room was a small filing table. The other furniture in the office was a desk just forward of the connecting door on the right. There was a dictaphone on the desk. In the near left corner, shielded by a white screen, was a small wash basin. The faucet leaked. Vernon Carney was middle-aged. He sat erect, holding a black box on his lap. He held his right hand inside one end of the box. Ben and I stood there for a minute and looked at him. Then we walked in the room. What do you say to a man with a bomb? That's close enough. Cigarette, Carney? I'm not smoking right now. What are you trying to prove? You know what I want. We're not going to let your brother out of jail. You got until 9 o'clock to change your mind. According to that clock on the wall, you got 24 minutes. If we go, you're going with us, Carney. Don't take much of a brain to figure that, copper. What made you think you could get away with this? Haven't yet. It ain't 9 o'clock. Unless that clock's slow. Haven't checked it against my pocket watch lately. That's the one that's running this show. 
Have you given any thought to all the innocent people that are going to go up with that thing of yours there? My brother's innocent. I want him out of jail. The court says he's guilty. He'll get out when he serves his time. That's where you're wrong, copper. He gets out at 9 o'clock this morning. All right, come on, Carney. Get your hand out of that box. Put the box on the table. You think I'm bluffing, don't you? I'm going to let you get within five feet before I make a liar out of you. Okay, Kearney. I guess you mean business. You can take three more steps and find out for sure. Suppose we did let your brother out. We'd just come out and pick him up again, you along with him? If you could find us. Let's get this straight. If we let your brother Elwood out, how do we know you're going to keep your promise? What promise? I ain't made any promises. You just get Elwood down here first, and then we'll talk about it. There's only one thing I can't figure, Kearney. Yeah, what's that? If we don't let your brother out, you say you'll pull the trigger on that bomb. You're going to kill a lot of innocent people. What are you going to prove by that? It's 8.37. You've got 23 minutes left. Now, I wish you'd answer that one for me. Why do you want to kill a lot of innocent people? Don't try to con me, copper. I know they cleared everybody out of this building 45 minutes ago. I know they cleaned out the whole block. They got it roped off. Where'd you get your information? I got a couple of windows here to look out of. Don't you think it's about time to send somebody over to get Elwood? You know, Carney, we've got a way out of this. We don't have to let your brother out, neither. I've heard that before. What's to stop us from leaving the building along with the other few officers and let you sit here and touch off that bomb? Go ahead. It won't be a long wait without you. Who are you trying to kid? You'd let me blow up $10 million worth of taxpayers' money? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. You're going to let Elwood out. You'll wait till the last minute to do it. But you'll let him out. Ed, I'm still not convinced Carney can back up what he says. Then why didn't you take the box away from him? Yeah. We're in a spot, let's face it. How about an eye for an eye, Skipper? What do you mean? If he pulls the trigger on that machine, he kills us. How about us getting him first? All right, Romero. How are you going to handle it? Well, I'm not top man on the pistol range, but I could wing him. And then he hands the box to you? Or maybe he falls and his reflex action pulls the trigger. Okay, I don't wing him. I stop him for keeps. You just can't walk in there and shoot him down. Why not? You do the same thing with armed criminal. Yeah, but you warn him first. I warn him. Yeah, and after you shoot him, you find out it's a harmless gadget. Couldn't have gone off in a million years. No, no, a gun's not the answer. We can't shoot him until we're positive. We'll be positive by 9 o'clock and there might not be anybody around to shoot him. We've located Carney's apartment. There's a detail out there checking it now. Pacelli and Morris. Ed, have you got any ideas at all? Anything we could try? That's why I called you in. None of us have gotten any further than you did just now. There's just one thing I want to know for sure. Yeah, Friday. Is it or isn't it? We all want to know. Either way, we've got to get that box away from him. Backstrand. Yeah. You did? Yeah. No, stay out there till I call you. All right, here's half the answer. That was Pacelli. They found 28 sticks of dynamite in Carney's apartment. We knew Carney wasn't kidding now. We could see into the bomb through that glass window in one end. It looked like dynamite inside, and there was dynamite in Carney's room. We didn't know if he had the nerve to pull the trigger. We didn't know if it would go off when he did. This episode featured Parley Bear. At the risk of... Go slow. Possibly decanonizing a saint. <laughs> uh, 
I'll tell you, and I will humanize the man. As my wife has told me many times, I have a mouth. I thought I was just giving him some rather sparkling repartee, and it turns out he misinterpreted it as sass. He got mad at me, and it lasted for eight years. Now, that's carrying a peeve a little too damn far. But right out of a clear sky, I got a call for a television show, and I went over to the casting office at Warner Brothers. Asked the casting man, who's directing us? And he said, Jack Webb. And I slid the script back across the desk to him, and I said, uh, he's been mad at me for eight years. You better cast somebody else. And he said, well, he requested you. And I felt as though I'd been knighted for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> On my way home, I thought, no, he suddenly remembered something he didn't say to me eight years ago. <laughs> and he's going to get me in front of a bunch of people and say it. But, what the hell, I'll go along with the gag. So I had quite a bit of wardrobe to take, and it was about a school. What was that series? About the high school. Jane Wyman was in it. Didn't last very long, apparently. And uh, remember, I, mean, I, yeah, I thought the, the set was, there was no red light on when I went on, but I had quite a bit of wardrobe, and no one there to help me carry it. And I had script in a bag, and I was bringing two hats, and there was no place to put them, so I put them both on my head. There was no red light on the stage. I walked in and down a not-yet-lit set and walked right into the middle of a rehearsal. There I stopped, with one foot in the air like a sandhill crane, two hats on my head and my arms full of wardrobe and Mr. Webb glaring at me like a basilisk. There the matter rested for a matter of seconds. And he regained control and said, somebody help him with his wardrobe. They tottered me over to my dressing room, and Jack said, I'll be in a minute. And he came in with two cups of coffee. He said, as I remember it, you take cream and sugar. Yes, I tasted it gingerly and then drank it down. <laughs> and I have to say that whatever our difference of opinion was, he had completely forgotten it or had loftily risen above it. And then I worked for him pretty steadily from then on. agreed that Vernon Carney sat in the next room holding in his two hands a force powerful enough to destroy us all. We had to get that box away from him and to get that box we had to have a plan. I looked at my watch. It was 8.40. 20 minutes till 9 o'clock. How do we get it away from him? I got an idea. It might work. Let's have it. Carney's sitting against the far wall between two windows. They're both open. Yeah, try. All right. If we could get a man through one of those windows, we might get Carney from behind. How are you going to get him? Whoever gets through the window could slug him. What do you do then? Somebody grabs the box. The crime lab can tell us what to do with it. How do we get a man through one of those windows? We're on the 16th floor. Well, there's some kind of a ledge that runs around the building on each story. Wide enough for a man to walk on? And let's take a look. All right. Looks pretty narrow, Joe. That's a good 18 inches. Could be done. Oh, too risky. It's raining out. That ledge is slippery. Strong wind out there, Joe. Tear a man right off the building. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, there's still a way. How about a ladder? 16 floor, Skipper. There might be a way. The fire department would know that. I'll get Battalion Chief Erickson. Is Lee Jones in the building? No, he's over in the crime lab. I'll get him up here, too. I don't know, Friday. Maybe it'll work. It's got to, Ed. All right, now look. It's going to take a couple of minutes to set this up. We've got to know what Carney's doing every second of that time. Well, how about the dictaphone in there on the desk? Good. Get it on without him seeing you. We'll try. The dictaphone in there is connected to this one in here. This room is 1614. You got that? Yeah. All right, push down key 1614 on that machine in there and leave it down. Get the receiver off the hook and leave it off. Leave the receiver off. That's right. 
You know, if it isn't off the hook, we won't be able to hear a thing in here. All right. Come on, Ben. This is back, friend. Give me Chief Erickson. Where's my brother? Still in his cell. You coppers are long on talk, but short on time. Yeah, we know. I'm telling you, for your own good, you'd better get Elwood over here. Carney, I'll bet if we get your brother on the phone here, he'll tell you he doesn't want any part of this. You mean Elwood don't want out? Since when? Sure he wants out, but not your way. He's only got a year to serve. Why don't you leave him alone? I told Al. I told him I'd get him out. He didn't think I could do it. But I'm doing it. I'll make you a bet, Carney. Let us get your brother on the phone. He won't walk out of here with you. Right, get him on the pipe. Where you going? The phone's over here. Have to use the dictaphone. Got to get an okay from the chief. Elwood's still a prisoner. What's the matter with the phone? No operators. You know the building's been cleared. Oh, yeah. That's right. Almost forgot. Okay, you can use the dictaphone. This Friday, Ed. Carney wants to talk to his brother. Yeah, I know you'll have to send somebody over. Have them put the call on extension... Uh, wait a minute. What's that extension number, Ben? 2351. 2351, Ed. Right. It'll take a minute. Yeah. I'd kind of like to talk to El. Been a couple of months since I seen him. We've always been together, me and Al, most of the time. Joe, let's go in and see if we can't hurry that call. Good idea, boy. Sixteen minutes to nine. Hey, cop. Yeah? Forgot to hang up the dictaphone, didn't you? Let's talk a little bit about Dragnet again, working with Jack Webb. Yeah. You would, were a part of his company. Yes. So to speak, it was mm -hmm. an informal company, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, yes, sure. It's just that he relied on these people, not meaning to, I'm sure. He didn't set out to form a group, but it was very hard to break into that little company of his. He was looked, Vic Perrin. And he looked, I think, for a naturalness on the part of his... Oh, yes, he did. And he wanted the audience, whether on radio or television, to identify with these people, or at least to listen to them and say, that is really how this, That's right. this person would sound on that. That being so, strangely, I have done some of the broadest characters I've ever done for Jack. I mean, really broad, far-out characters, except he felt that they were real. What he didn't want you to do was act. As long as you could be real in whatever you were doing, that was fine. What kind of direction did he give you then with that end in mind? Not any more than he had to. Not character direction. He'd hand you the part and say she's A, or it was written out that way. If you got too far off, he'd bring you back. And you knew what was expected of you, and he knew that you could do what he was looking for. That's right. How long did it take to do a Dragnet radio show, for example? Would it be a one-day thing? Oh, yeah. A whole day? Half a day? No, not a whole day. Not even a whole day. When you get that box, place it in the water. We'll get the bucket out of the building as fast as we can. Once we get the bomb underwater, we're in a clear. I can't promise you that, but it's the safest way to handle it under the circumstances. All right, that's the procedure. Sam, you take care of your end. Right away. I'll get a detail to give me a hand down on the street. We'll have a car ready to take the bomb to a safe area to decommission it. Work as fast as you can. Come on, Sam. It's our baby, Joe. That's right. Which part of it you want, the rope or the bomb? You call it. Fire Chief Erickson says the lightest man on the rope. That's me, Joe. All right, I'll get the bomb out of the building. Okay, that's the routine, but carry this with you. The man that comes down on that rope has one chance to make good. You slug him and make it count because there's no second try. Yeah. And Joe, when you grab that box, you've got to get it away from Carney before he can squeeze the trigger. 
Then you've got to get it down into the street. The elevator. You know how to operate it? That's well, pretty simple, but I'll double-check with the operator. Better do it right now. Okay. Ed, we better get Carney's brother on the phone for him. He seemed anxious. Might be a pretty good stall. All right, Romero, that's the outside phone. Get the city jail. All right, Skipper. Get going, Friday. Okay. Jack Webb leaned on James Moser for writing and Bill Rousseau for early direction. Vic Perrin was an oft-featured guest star. Bill directed it for a long time. And he was uh, in on the origination of the show, too. He and a director, uh, an NBC director, Carl Gruner, was also in on it. Bill did the directing for, I don't remember how long it was, but eventually I think Jack took over. But yes, Bill was a fine director and a fine person. That's it. Right to go up, left to go down. Right to go up, left to go down. How do you operate the doors? Automatic. They work off the control lever. When the control lever is locked in the up or down position, the doors will close. I get it. Now, in case they jam, this red emergency button up here? Yeah. Push it. If that doesn't close them, we call the repairman. Okay, I think I got it. You sure now? I've had my orders to get out of the building. I'll just leave the elevator right here and take the stairs down. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, Sergeant, Hmm? uh, just curious. You gonna take the bomb down in this car? We're gonna try. You won't have any trouble. We haven't had an elevator failure in 18 months. Herb Vigran often played a heavy. Herb, did you ever work for Jack Webb? Oh, yes, I did a lot. An of awful lot, didn't you? Yeah, an yeah. awful lot, yeah. And most of his people were radio people. Mm-hmm. Now, he was Virginia Gregg all the time. Yes. Was he a, an easy guy to work for? Well, a lot of people didn't think so. I loved him. I, I had never had a problem with Jack. I got along just great with Jack. He was a very positive guy and a very impatient guy. Put up with no nonsense. But boy, he knew what he wanted, and he got what he wanted. I told him over to jail to put the call through on extension 2351. Yeah. When's it coming through? Right now. Mm-hmm. You got Elwood with you? No. Look, Carney, we told you we'd get him on the phone for you. The call will be through in a minute. Minutes a long time, cop. You only got 12 of them left. Elwood's going to talk you out of this. Oh, sure. Sure, everybody's going to talk me out of this. First, it was them other two cops, the little porky guy and that other monkey. Then you and this Dixie Doughhead here, and now it's Elwood. Come off it, will you, and get my brother over here. That's him. It's your brother, Connie. I'll get him. Stay put, you. Just going to get the phone. You want to talk to your brother, don't you? I'll take care of the phone. We'll just connect it for a while. Now, get it straight, copper. I'm through with your stinking, rotten lying. I want Elwood here, and I want him now. Bring him here before I blow you all to pieces. What's going on? Who threw that phone out in the hall? I did. You want me to go out and pick it up? Carney, that's not going to get you any place. You the big boss around here? Maybe. Are you or aren't you? I answered you. All right, big boy. I've got a piece of advice for you. Take your rookie cops here and get it through their heads. I mean what I say. I want my brother over here in this room. And you've got just 11 minutes to get it done. Tell him that, will you, boy? All right, Carney. It's your show. All right, we got to work fast now. Jones, everything's set for you? Got the bucket with the water right here. Car's waiting down in the street. Right. Erickson, your boy's ready? Upstairs, waiting. And we all know what to do. Ed, I got to have somebody to give me a hand with Carney when he falls. I'll be in there with you, Friday. Ready to go upstairs, Chief? Anytime. Oh, one thing you ought to know. What's that? Strong wind coming up. About 20 mile an hour out there right now. That going to louse us up? No, but it's going to increase the sway. Got to allow for it. How you mean? Wind's coming from the south. We'll lower you just to the right of the window. If I figure it correctly, wind will do the rest. 
big a risk, but we don't control the weather. How you going to do it, Ben? As soon as I get in position, I'll reach in through the window on his right. I'll use the belly. Try to catch him on the right side of his head. One good hit should put him away. Let's make it two and be sure, huh? Right. You ready, G? Now, let's go. Ben. Yeah? Nothing. I'll be careful. You too, huh? What's the time, Friday? 8.50. Shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes for Romero to get down to that window. Unless the wind gives him trouble. Jones, no use you sticking around. I'll give Friday a hand. That's my job. We've got to keep you alive to decommission the bomb. Bomb joke. See you downstairs. You ready, Ed? Yeah. Scared, Friday? Yeah. That makes us even. Come on. That style, by the way, has been largely misinterpreted. Everybody said that all the actors spoke in a monotone, and that is not true. What Jack said was, do not project. Don't act. Yes, well, well in effect, was... yes, but acting it in the sense of projecting a performance. You had a great deal of scope in the way you played the character as long as it didn't become too large. Yeah. That it was all. Didn't seem he, like and he drove a merciless pace. His TV scripts had about 50% more material in them than the average TV show of the same length. You had to play in the same key that he played, or you looked like an absolute ham. Actually, he would deny this, but I believe that he was doing the same thing as the actor's studio, only in radio in those days. I don't think it carried over in the television shows, but I do think in those early days in radio, he was going for absolute truth, and it was right after the war, and people wanted absolute truth. But you wouldn't do what I told you. Now I'm cutting you short. You guys have got exactly one minute to get a phone in this room where I can hear you call the jail and have them send Elwood over here. You said nine, Carney. All right, Joe. We'll give him what he wants. Davis, unlock the connecting door to this office. I'll get the phone, Ed. Will the cord reach? Yeah. Your brother's a prisoner. He's in our custody and he's under our protection. We can't place his life in jeopardy. Why not leave it up to Al? Here's the phone, Ed. Yeah. Kenworthy, this is Backstrand. We want Elwood Carney over here at City Hall. His brother wants to see him. Explain the situation. If he wants to come, get him over here. Leave it up to him. Room 1614. You'll have to use the freight elevator. And tell him to hurry. Yeah. Tell him to hurry. That's the only smart thing you've done today. Now, why don't you go next door and figure out another angle? We'll wait for Elwood, too. You don't think I'd let you get out now, do you? We're all going to wait right here for my brother. In case he don't show up, you're going to see me pull the plug. Just sit down. Not so close. Right where you are, sit down. Loud clock, ain't it? Windy. Getting cold in here. Sure, a loud clock. Real windy. 
Maybe I ought to close the windows. Don't want to catch me a cold. I can turn on the heat. Stay put, cop. Hey, what's that? What's going on? Just the wind. Shut up. There's somebody out there. I can see his feet. You stupid cops. Pull him up. Get back there. You pull him up. Freddy told him to pull him up. Right. All right, Carney, you win. You bet I win, you dumb coppers. You didn't think I'd miss a trick like that? We'll just close these windows, boys. There's one, and lock it. And here's... Here's your brother, Carney. Yeah. Hi, Al. Hi, Vern. You did it. I told you. I told you I'd do it, didn't I? That's far enough for the rest of you. Al, come on over here. You're crazy, Vern. You're crazy. That's what they've been trying to tell me. We're going home, Al. How are you going to do it? There's a million cops outside. People all over town heard about this. They're holding the crowd back. They ain't going to stop us now, Al. You'll never make it. Either one of you. I got him this far, didn't I? We'll make it. Vern, you think we could do it? Hey, you. Yeah? You're going to get a car ready for us, a fast one. Have it in front of the building. Move! All right, Franny, do what he tells you. Right. Hold it. Yeah. If you ain't back by 9 o'clock, the deal still holds. I told him I'd pull the pin at 9, L, if they didn't let you out. You ain't fooling, are you, Vern? Will that gadget really blow? Four miles high. You know what that means, Al? Yeah. But they won't let you pull it. We're getting out. All right, copper. Get the car. You've got four minutes. Hey, Ben, Ben. What happened? He spot me? Yeah, there's no time to explain. Now, listen, we've got to work fast. Yeah. We had to bring Carney's brother over from the jail. I don't think he cares if they get out or not. He just wants to use that bomb, and for some crazy reason, he's waiting until nine. How much time we got? Let me look. Less than four minutes. How about the ledge? You think you can do it? Strong wind. You'll have to hang on like a fly. I don't know. I can give it a try. Okay. Same plan. Every second counts. Now, I can't brief Ed. He's in the room with the guy. It's up to you and me. I'll get on the ledge from one of these offices. I hope I'll make it. If you don't, we'll know you tried. Hurry. Hey, Ben, wait a minute. Yeah? I forgot. The windows. The one on his right. He locked it. You'll have to crawl around to the one on the left. You got it? Right. Okay. Carl will be ready in two minutes. Out front. Fine. Ellen, I'll just sit here and wait. Gonna be good being back together, Hyle. We always were real good together, Vern. Yeah, that's the way brothers ought to be together all the time. Together. Uh, Vern, I'd feel better with a gun. We don't need no gun, Al. <laughs> we got the bomb. We'll need a gun when we get out, when we get on the road. Okay. Take your pick. They all got him. Hey, you, give him yours. I'm not carrying a gun. I left it in the other room. A cop without a gun? Who's kidding who? I left it in the other room. Frisk the big boy, Al. He's got one. About time for the car, ain't it? Two minutes to nine. Yeah, this feels like it. Right on his hip. Hey, Vern, look out! Grab him, Joe, I got him. Get the box. Leave that gun alone. I got him, Ben. I gotta get his hand out of it. Run, Joe. Get it in the water. Run! 
floors isn't very much, but I've never shared an elevator with a live bomb. It seemed like minutes between floors. I kept watching the bucket. The bomb was completely underwater. A small stream of bubbles was hissing to the surface. I waited. Main floor. I picked up the bucket and ran for the street. I missed the first step. I fell forward. The bucket spun out of my hand. I sprawled flat on the sidewalk. I waited for the explosion. It didn't go off Friday. Yeah. I gave it a good chance, Lee. It was all there. Look. At least a dozen sticks of dynamite. Snyder, bring that over here. Here you are, Lieutenant. Thanks. Here's why it didn't go off. Mm-hmm. Had it rigged for a hard trigger pull. Would have taken a good yank to set this one off. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ben. Clumsy. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Vernon Carney was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be incompetent. He is now confined in the state mental institution for the criminally insane. Elwood Carney is now serving the balance of his sentence with no time off for good behavior. NBC finally had a hit. It wasn't long before Liggett and Myers Tobacco signed on as sponsor. We have just heard the seventh in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Town Marshal Lon T. Larson of the Mount Pleasant, Utah Force, who, on the night of October 15, 1945, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. CBS took notice. A month after Dragnet's premiere, they shifted Broadway Is My Beat to Hollywood and put it under Elliot Lewis's direction. From Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls.
Fred was a rebel against authority. He objected to authority whenever it attempted to interfere with what he wanted to do. Fred actually was not a comedian who used blue material, but the censors were terribly cautious, shall we say, and uh, would frequently read into the line something that was not there. And did you worry all week about that Sunday night show? You had to worry because you had to keep your rating, and when ratings became exposed to the um, advertising people, why then you had to be conscious of that and also the sales of the product and the quality of your show and the competition and the opposition and things. There were many things to be concerned about. By January of 1949, Fred Allen was worn out. In December of 1948, his rating was a healthy 20 points, while ABC's musical giveaway show Stop the Music pulled a rating of 13. But after Edgar Bergen left NBC's airwaves, the network moved Allen's show up a half hour to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. His rating cratered. The next month it was 11.7, while Stop the Music jumped to 16.3. By March it had fallen to 9.4, while Stop the Music had risen to 17.6. How did you try to handle the situation when Stop the Music came on at the same time as your Sunday night show and took over? Stop the Music can't take all the credit. The problem came when Jack Benny and Amos and Andy and Edgar Bergen all went over to the other network and our show was left alone. We stayed with NBC and we were sort of vulnerable because most of the audience up until 8.30 went over to the other network or 8 o'clock I guess it was. And we were a show that was 18 years old, and consequently a new show which appealed to greed and, you know, supposedly the money was available for people. Actually, it wasn't. That's explained in the book, too. But the coming of the quiz show showed that the interest in the advertising part of the business, the advertising money supports the, the programs, they were interested in the cheaper shows that would get the larger audiences for their advertising purposes. They had no interest in the development of talent or in the quality of the shows, and consequently, when the quiz shows were cheap, then they became very popular, not because they, the public wanted them or because they were exceptionally good. It was principally because they were cheaper. Nobody profited except the man who owned the quiz show. The network didn't profit because they were advertising 20 products who were giving their products to the people who owned the quiz show to advertise for nothing as far as the sponsor was concerned. They had no musicians on. They had nobody on. Allen was his own chief writer. He was a voracious reader, sometimes scouring as many as 10 newspapers each day for topical material. In the end, perhaps Fred Allen cared too much, as his close friend Donald Voorhees remembered. Each year, Fred dreaded more the chore of this weekly radio program that he had to do and toward the end of the season he <laughs> he really quite beat as a matter of fact that brought on the no question of what that brought on the hypertension high blood pressure because it got to be more and more of just a dreadful chore as time went on because fred would never settle for repeats or imitations by June, with his rating down to an unthinkable 5.8, he'd had enough. The 55-year-old called it a 17-year radio career after June 26th. Jack Benny and Henry Morgan were his final guests. Fittingly, the program ran long, and Allen's network feed was cut off. Uh, 
Mr. Benny, uh, Mr. Benny, the reason that I'm here... Yes, see, Jack, I'm... look, Henry has to borrow $300 by 4 o'clock, or some shyster with a loan company will take his furniture and his moose head. Yes, Mr. Benny, see, we thought that maybe you $300. Would... Hmm. I'm a good risk, Mr. Benny. I've been working all winter. Yes. You worked all winter and you're broke? I'm flatter than something that's been stepped on. Mr. Morgan, this is rather a personal question, but what do you do with your money? I spend it. I, I see your problem already. <laughs> uh, how, how do you spend your money? Well, after a hard day's work, I generally go into a bar for a cocktail. Yeah. I buy drinks for everybody, and then we uh, go to dinner. We? After buying a few drinks, I suddenly acquire a crowd of friends. And you buy everybody dinner? Well, if I bring guests in to eat, I have to pick up a check, don't I? I've heard of it. The... <laughs> well, uh, after dinner, the whole gang follows me to a nightclub. I, I pay the check and tip everybody wearing a mess jacket. Always end up broke. That's why I need $300. Mr. Morgan, if you would do as I do, you wouldn't need $300. Well, what do you do? Well, after a hard day's work like you, I go into a bar. And uh, you buy a drink? First, I let out a shriek so everybody sees me, and then I faint. You faint? A crowd gathers. Somebody gives me three or four brandies to bring me two. <laughs> I get up off the floor, shake hands all around, and leave for dinner. Do you eat alone, Mr. Benny? No, I usually find a group of friends at a table and I sit with them. Who pays for the dinner? Well, all during the meal, I keep feeling my pad of butter. You keep feeling your butter? Yes. When it comes time to pay, I reach for the check. While my hand is slipping around, somebody else picks it up. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'd like to know something. After dinner, do you go out to a nightclub? Always. I order champagne for everybody. And then just before the floor show finishes... I swallow four sleeping pills fast. Four sleeping pills? Yes, I don't know how the party ends up or who pays the check. I just wake up in bed the next day well rested. <laughs> you, see, you see, Henry, Mr. Benny really knows how to live. And well, nobody ever made me this cheap on my own program. <laughs> Mr. Chief, Mr. Benny, I'll certainly follow your advice. Oh, there's just one more thing. Yes, Mr. Morgan. Can you let me have $300? Yes, Jack. Henry has to have $300 by 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock? Why, it's 5 after 4 now. Excuse me, that's the phone. I'll answer it in the booth. Fred, it's 5 after 4. I'm ruined. Now, Henry, Henry, don't go to pieces. Well, Fred, my furniture, my moose head, the Mohawk Loan Company will take everything. Henry, I'll go home with you. Maybe I can talk to the shyster who's president of that Mohawk Loan Company. Well, I'm sorry, fellas. I have to leave. That phone call was urgent. Some business just came up. Well, let's go, Henry. Maybe I can give you fellas a lift. Which way are you going? Well, I'm going home. I live on East 61st Street. Really? I'm going to East 61st Street. I live at 331. Now, oh, that's a coincidence. I'm going to 331. Then you must be coming to my house. I don't know. I have to pick up some furniture and a moose head. Jack Getty. Besides running a turnstile in the subway, a slot in the office. I also happen to be the shyster who's president of the Mohawk Loan Company. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. To 
of general acceptance, I think you find that things change as you progress. Not always for the better, but they change. <laughs> Life is constant adjustment to change. I mean, nothing stays as it is. And I'm sorry about that. It is uh, unfortunate that you can't just pick a time in your life where things are going well and the children are at a certain age and you just stop there and just live eternally, but you can't do that. What time of your life, if you could do that, would you want to... Well, I've been so busy, I've never given it any thought. It's a waste of time anyway. You can't accomplish it, so why waste your time thinking about something you can't do? Well, I would think you would have picked the time when... Sunday nights, you had the greatest radio program in the country. I also had the greatest aggravation and the greatest stress and the bigger taxes at that time, too. So there's something on the other side. There's something to be said on the government side, too. Although Fred Allen's program came to a close, he was still under contract. He became a regular on NBC's The Big Show, appearing on 24 episodes. And he did eventually break into TV, first as the MC of Judge for Yourself, and later spending the rest of his life as a regular panel member on CBS's What's My Line. I left radio. Partly radio left me, and then I got the idea, and I left radio. No, I was ill at the time, and I had to quit for a while. By the time I got better, radio had sort of gone over the hill. I hope it hasn't now, because I love radio. Well, radio... I'm mad about this microphone instead of three cameras with... That's true. I think you get the better attention from the audience because the audience has to join you and use a little imagination. Where on television, you have no imagination at all, including the people who are pushing the cameras around because they have very little respect for the actor, too. You can create a, an atmosphere or a, establish a locale at a microphone, mm -hmm. but you can't do that in television unless somebody paints a scene or unless the camera is at a certain angle. And, it seems to me that television is a triumph of machine over people. Between 1954 and 56, he retired to a small New York office to write six hours each day without distractions. He penned a newspaper column and wrote two autobiographies, Treadmill to Oblivion, which focused on his radio and TV career, and Much Ado About Me, which covered his childhood vaudeville and Broadway years. Could you just explain uh, what Treadmill to Oblivion means, why well, you called it that? Well, I called it that because any successful person, or especially a comedian who gets involved in the mechanized version of the entertainment world, has to compete with the machine. And, of course, he has to lose the battle because the machine is going to survive and the comedian... I treat comedians because I know more about them and was formerly and am currently an alleged comedian. But treadmill to... Well, you're on a treadmill if you're on... The, we did 700 and some odd hours during the 18 years we were on radio. And ultimately, the machine is still here, the microphone is still here, and I became ill. Not from reading the jokes, but I mean from pressure and work and sustained aggravation and things like that. I wonder if you, you just read too, the didn't? last couple of lines in your book. Well, you that, that tells you. When the radio comedians... Whether or not he knows it, the successful comedian is on a treadmill to oblivion. When a radio comedian's program is finally finished, it slinks down memory lane into the limbo of yesterday's happy hours. All that the comedian has to show for his years of work and aggravation is the echo of forgotten laughter and some receipts from the Treasury Department. But that's sad. It is sad, but it's true. Everything that's true is sad, in a way. Echoes of... Forgotten Treadmill to Oblivion is one of the best-selling autobiographical books by any radio star in history. 
Ketchup. What are these gentlemen? I don't know. What do you want to eat, though? I don't know what I want to eat. And I'll have the roast pork tenderloin with the applesauce and mashed potatoes. That's not ready yet. And what's it on the card for? Well, that's on the dinner. And have that at 6 o'clock. clock is 10 minutes past. The dinner isn't ready yet. Never mind the clock. What have you got to eat? Well, I can give you any kind of sandwiches, bacon and eggs, liver and bacon, ham and eggs, steaks. I'll take the, uh, the chicken croquettes with the cream sauce, the green peas, and the mashed potatoes. That's on the dinner, too. Everything we want's on the dinner. That's the way you work it, huh? I can give you ham and eggs, bacon and eggs, liver and bacon. ham and eggs. Give me bacon and eggs. One ham and bacon and... Come on out. You got anything to drink? I can give you soda, beer, ginger ale. I said, have you got anything to drink? No. This is a hot town. What do you call it? Brentwood. Ever hear of Brentwood? What do you do here nights? They eat for dinner. They all come here and eat the big dinner. I had never been on a network show, and I was in the Army, and it was about 1945, and somebody said, they will allow you for the next two or three months while you're waiting to get out to take a job occasionally, as long as it doesn't interfere with your work. And I was in the Armed Forces Radio Service. So uh, I went up and auditioned for a show called The Whistler on CBS. Hope to get a small part in it. Much to my amazement, I got a call to come do it that Sunday, and uh, I was doing the lead in it. It <laughs> scared the hell out of me. But I did it. I guess they liked it because they asked me back next week to do the lead in it. And I think that was the first, that, well, I know that was the first network show I ever did. William Conrad was born on September 27, 1920, in Louisville, Kentucky. His parents were movie theater owners. Conrad grew up reciting lines and studying films. In high school, he moved to Southern California, next majoring in drama and literature at Fullerton College. He began his career at the Los Angeles radio station KMPC, where he got to know John Daner. KMPC was such a part of my, my soul, my life. But I began when KMPC was a little wonderful Spanish house in Beverly Hills. That's right, he was a private yeah. owner in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and he also owned WGAR in Detroit. G.A. Richards. Dare I ask roughly the time period? Yeah, this is about 42. And what were you doing there? You were a newscaster? Or? No, I started out as an announcer. Then I became an actor, of all things, on a show called The Hermit's Cave. It was a staple. I played the hermit. He cackled a lot. Then I became a newscaster. Then I became news editor. 1942 or 43, around there. Conrad served as a fighter pilot in World War II. He left the U.S. Army Air Force as a captain and as a producer-director for the Armed Forces Radio Service. In 1946, he was cast as a heavy and received his first film credit as one of the two men sent to gun down Burt Lancaster in The Killers. Conrad was just 25. Some more film and a lot of radio followed, often as a villain. He did character work on The Man Called X, the Scarlet Voyage, Johnny Modero, Pier 23, The Whistler, The Green Llama, and Escape. I was doing a lot of work around CBS, and 
I got in those days, it was unbelievable. We were doing 15, averaging maybe 10 to 15 shows a week. A lot of it was at CBS. I never got involved in the comedy shows, so I did all of the dramatic shows. I started doing the opening voice in it. Frankly, I don't remember how it started, but I did an awful lot of it. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape. Transcribed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. In July of 1949, Billboard reported that NBC would use their new summer shows with an eye towards long-term production. On July 3rd, they launched the four-star Playhouse. It was an anthology built around four major film stars, each of whom took a turn in the weekly presentations. They were Fred McMurray, Loretta Young, Rosalind Russell, and Robert Cummings. Don W. Sharp produced, Warren Lewis directed, and Milton Geiger handled the scripts. Stories came from Cosmopolitan magazine. On August 14th, they broadcast The Hunted, co-starring Conrad, Lorene Tuttle, Wilms Herbert, and Lawrence Dobkin. Here is another in NBC's outstanding parade of new shows, dramatically transcribed. Four Star Playhouse, a repertory company of four great Hollywood stars. This is Robert Cummings. This is Rosalind Russell. This is Fred McMurray. This is Loretta Young. Yes, these are the stars heard weekly on Four Star Playhouse. Ladies and gentlemen, one of our four star players and star of tonight's play, Robert Cummings. Thank you. And in behalf of Rosalind Russell, Fred McMurray, and Loretta Young, let me welcome you back to our four-star playhouse. As you know, every Sunday night at this time, Roz, Fred, Loretta, and I appear in new dramatizations of stories selected from Cosmopolitan magazine. Stories by the world's leading writers of popular fiction. How often have you all had the strange, haunting experience which made you say, it seems that all this has happened to me before? Psychologists call that phenomenon... Prevision. Tonight's story explores an experience in prevision. We think it will hold you spellbound right up to its stunning and fearful finish. Prepare now for gripping action as we bring you Maurice Baudin Jr.'s strange and powerful story, The Hunted, in which I am Fred Woodard. The Hunted. <laughs> I was tired. Looking for a job in a strange city wasn't doing me any good. I was hot. I felt weak. My eyes throbbed. My head swam. I had to sit down. To escape from the heat, I went into the small, air-cooled theater. Feature picture goes on in ten minutes, mister. Oh, thanks, Usher. Hot out, ain't it? That's yeah, terrible. You look beat. Why don't you sit down and wait till the newsreel's over? Oh, thanks. I will. 
I sat down to rest. I wasn't the only one. Across the lobby was a man, sound asleep. A man with a paunch. A man with a white scarf around his neck. And then she came in. The girl came in through the front door looking hunted and furtive. She saw the man with the paunch and started. Paunch opened his eyes and got up and walked toward her. In a panic, the girl dashed into the powder room. Paunch sat down again closed his eyes. I didn't like it. Not a bit. Uh, Usher. Yeah? Uh, that guy over there with the paunch and the white scarf. A, yeah. a girl came in and he tried to make a pass. Oh, forget it. Happens every day in theaters. Me, I keep my nose clean. I keep out of it. Uh, I don't like it. Routine. Don't let it bother you. I glared across at the sleeping fat man. And then my head began to nod. And then there she was again, the girl. She was coming in through the front doors again, with a hunted, fearful look on her delicate face. Impulsively, I got up. News will be over in five more minutes. Oh, excuse me. Please, I'm in a hurry. Yes, I know. And, and that man sleeping over that fellow with the white scarf is bothering you. Who are you? You wouldn't know me. I'm a stranger in town. He isn't asleep. He's pretending. Let me speak to him. No. Is he bothering you? Uh, he's following me. He's everywhere. I, I tried to hide in here. here give but... me these parcels. We'll walk out here together. He won't follow us. He will. Come on. Don't look back. He's getting up. How do you know? I see him in the mirrors. He's following. Well, let him. Faster. He looks sad, but he's quick. Well, then we'll ride. Let's see. Uh, uh, taxi! Taxi! <laughs> My name's Fred Woodard. I'm Ruth. <laughs> Are you listed that way in the telephone book? Just Ruth, if you don't mind. Okay, Ruth. Oh, uh, driver, this is all right. Uh, we'll get out here. Here, take my hand. Thanks. Okay, driver, how much do Fred. I... Fred! Hmm? It's him. I look back. The punch was getting out of a taxi and paying his fare without even glancing at us. And then he stood at the curb and lighting a cigarette, ignoring us, but knowing we were there. Knowing we would always be there. Here, driver, keep the change. Come on, Ruth. He can ride as fast as we can, but he can't walk as fast. Oh, can't he? Let me go back and smack him so he stays smacked. No, that wouldn't do any good. Hmm, still behind us. No matter how fast we walk, he keeps the same distance. I'm going back and talk to White Scarf. Don't. Well, why? You said you wouldn't ask. All right, but... Hurry! I'm hurrying. Run! You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the, the full person. At least I did, and I know that all of us tried to work that way because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too. Because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart, or Frederick March, or Cary Grant, or Gary Cooper, or Leslie Howard. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wish to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. Now what should we do? How about lunch? What did you eat? Ages ago. Well, let's eat. I feel good again. 
I don't remember ordering this iced coffee, did I? You did, and very plainly. <laughs> That's funny. Obviously, you're too much for my presence of mind. I hope you won't regret our meeting. Oh, it's highly unlikely. Say, do you re realize how rudely other men in this restaurant are staring at you and wishing they were me? Now, just glance about you modestly and... <laughs> no. Don't. Is it? White scarf. Five tables behind you. No, no, don't turn around. Now, just smile and look animated. I'll do the same. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'll tell you when to look up at the clock and exclaim about the time. Yes. And I'll, uh, I'll stand up and say goodbye. All smiles, just like this, see? And, and we'll part like old friends, going to see each other again. Make up something as you leave. All right. What about you? I'll stay right here. He'll follow me. And I'll follow him. I don't think he'll like that. He'll know you're following him. I want him to know. Now, look up at the clock. Yes. Oh, dear, look at that time. I really must go now, Mr. Woodard. He's getting up to go, too. Of course. Well, I'll meet you afterward. Um, Wheelock's department store, the information desk. What time? I'll be there in exactly an hour if I'm not followed. Meet you there in one hour. Okay. Give me a big goodbye now. Oh, it's been awfully nice, Mr. Woodard. Maybe we can do this again soon. Well, yes, Friday. Good. Well, it's a date. Goodbye. See you Friday. Right. And here comes White Scott, right on schedule. Uh, got a match, friend? Did you speak to me? Uh, match? No. Going someplace? Yes. Uh, why are you following that girl? What girl? You know what girl. Point her out to me. Why, she... <laughs> well, she's gone, isn't she? You think I've lost her, huh? Who? The girl. Well, what girl? Hmm. <laughs> Who knows? Well, we must uh, do this again sometime. Not too often. Well, that's up to you, isn't it? Good afternoon, fool. He walked out, obviously no longer following Ruth. Her trail was lost. I was pleased with myself, so pleased that I could hardly wait for the hour to pass to tell Ruth that I'd shaken White Scarf. I went to Wheelock's department store. I waited for her at the information desk. Oh, oh there you are, Fred. Here's some packages for you. Are you getting bored or tired? Bored? No. Didn't you see the excitement? Excitement? No. Well, it seems someone lifted a dagger at the antique jewelry counter, and they just found out a few minutes ago. <laughs> more confusion. Oh. Well, I'll be back again soon with more packages. Do you mind? Don't go away or get lost, will you? Don't worry. Okay, sucker, come along. Who? Come on. White scarf. Let's go. Well, you found us again. If one knows where to look, one finds. What do you mean by shadowing us this way? We ask the questions. Now, come along. Where? Upstairs. Who are you? Guess. The police. Come on. Your lady friend's waiting for you. Lady friend? Come on. I remembered vaguely reading something like this in the past. But what was it? I, I'd forgotten. White Scarf took me upstairs to a bare room with a single desk. I saw Ruth staring at the floor. She didn't look up. There was a pile of parcels on the desk. Behind the desk stood a tall, blonde man, about 35. He started speaking the moment White Scarf pushed me into the room. Oh! The first thing you better do is empty out your pockets. You're, you're not talking to me. He's talking to you. Better do it. What are you raving about? You'll find some things in your pockets that don't belong to you. Why, they I belong to Wheelock's department store. Why, I... Well, good Lord. 
Put the watch in the desk, would it? I, I don't know how it got there. What else is there? What? Oh, this gold cigarette lighter. On the desk. Why, I never saw these things before. See here. Don't deny your Ruth's accomplice. Accomplice? Why, I... I... <laughs> oh, Ruth. He's a shoplifter. Shut up. <laughs> Just remarking, Murray. Remark when you're asked to remark. Well, li- listen, th- wait, this is crazy. You're, you're saying that Ruth is a thief and I helped her steal? There's some excuse for Ruth, but there's none for you. <laughs> oh, no, Oh, please, Ruth. Don't, darling. I don't know why I do it. I can't help it, Murray. I can't help it. I don't realize I do it. All, all these things are stolen. Things on you were. But I knew nothing about it. Ru- Ruth, tell them. Miss Fleming cannot answer for anything she does. You can. Who are you? Miss Fleming is not an ordinary thief. If she were, this would be for the police. As matters stand, the stars permit me to make an adjustment on the merchandise she appropriates. She is in the clear. (laughs) You'll get it, Zoe. Well, this is crazy. I I didn't realize what she was up to. You'll serve her sentence, too. Shut up! Take her to the next room. Come on. Look, look, I'm not a thief. I, I'm not a thief. And I'm not the police. But I am that poor girl's fiancé. Fiancé? I've been doing everything in my power. Everything within the power of love and modern medicine to help Ruth. To cure her of her kleptomania. And when a sniveling, lying crook like you takes advantage of her and breaks down everything I've accomplished... Stop it! Oh, cut it out. She was in trouble. That fellow with a scarf was following her. She, she wanted my help. I hired him to protect Ruth against herself. And against weasels like you. You don't know what you're talking about. I tell you... I'm going to put you where you won't prey on sick and helpless people. Don't touch that telephone. Put it down, I tell you. I'm going to put you where you can't pull your low, sneaking tricks. Drop it. Drop that phone. Operator, get me the police. Oh, I warned you. I, I warned you. I won't be framed. I won't. No one frames me like that. You hear? No one. Barrage of new shows with big-name Hollywood talent didn't work. The four-star Playhouse was a flop. It was canceled after the September 11, 1949 episode. William Conrad would go on to achieve his greatest radio success on CBS when in 1952 he began starring as Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. And featuring Lorene Tuttle and William Conrad. What you're doing here, you just showed me a couple of magazines about old radio and... I didn't realize that there was anything this advanced in the way of radio buffetry, if you would use that expression. I'm fascinated that there are a lot of people around who believe that radio was a great medium and could be a great medium today. Unfortunately, uh, it does not exist today, but I firmly believe that radio cuts it all over television in many areas. And it's a shame that a medium that is that beautiful has to disappear. You were asking something. In the 40s, was there as much concern for the ratings as there is now? Oh, you bet there was. Good Godfrey Nielsen and Hooper and Nielsen. That was before, I think, Crosley, or maybe not. But it certainly was. There was concern. And as a matter of fact, my deceased husband did those Websters, and it was a well-known fact that those Websters beat every week Ozzie and Harriet, 
First Nighter ran some of the top, top comedies straight into another evening when they were on Friday evenings. No one could top them, and no one could top those Websters. Agnes, Martinique, Singapore. At all the places of the world where danger and intrigue walk hand in hand, there you will find Steve Mitchell on another Dangerous Assignment. On Saturday, July 9th, 1949, Dangerous Assignment debuted on NBC starring Brian Dunleavy as Steve Mitchell. The National Broadcasting Company presents the first in an exciting new adventure series, Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy as Steve Mitchell. Steve. You're going to run this pretty little boat right onto the rocks if you don't put your hands on the wheel. Uh-uh. Automatic pilot. W5WRS oh. <laughs> calling W2BY. I should have known you'd have one of those on your boat. <laughs> so help me. First time in my life I've ever used it, Evelyn. Eloise. Hello, sure, sure. W5WRS calling W2BYR. Steve. Mm-hmm. Why don't you turn that radio off? Hmm? I never should have turned it on. What's all that W stuff? Hmm? Who's that silly woman trying to get, anyway? Oh, W5WRS calling W2BYR. That's the ship-to-shore operator. <laughs> Brother, you know them all. What does she want with you? I'm afraid I know. <laughs> well, I guess I better answer before they send the Coast Guard. <clears throat> W5WRS from W2BYR. Go ahead. Stand by, W2BYR. I have a call for you. Go ahead. This is Ruth, Steve. The commissioner wants to see you right away. Over. Now look, Ruth. I said only call me in an emergency. Over. The commissioner says this is an emergency. Over. But I'm in the middle of a big deal, Ruth. I'm tied up. Over. Just a minute, Steve. He says untie her and get into the office. But tell him... Oh, okay. I'll come back. Out. Eloise, I'm afraid... And for this, I broke another day. Now, look, Eloise, I'm sorry. So what do I do? I go out and buy a new sunsuit. And it's a very nice sunsuit. I even fry some chicken for the first time in my life. I fry some chicken. But this probably won't take long. What am I supposed to do in the meantime? And what am I going to do with all that fried chicken? Uh, well, keep it on ice for me, huh? Each week, Mitchell was sent to a different location to crack into the bed of discontent and rout the perpetrators. Herb Butterfield and Betty Moran co-starred with the famed Hollywood regulars like Betty Lou Gerson filling out the supporting roles. And then I started learning how to act, really. I became one of NBC's little... Well, you know, they signed a certain number of actresses and you played everything, every kind of part. There was lights out, flying time, which would be an ingenue, and you might be an old lady here and you might do baby cries on that, but you really learned your trade when you were uh, under contract to NBC because they kept you busy acting at anything and everything. And then I just got very, very fortunate... 
and had a lot of shows offered me on contract. I can't remember the name of the show. It was Oceda Mop. That was a half-hour show. It was a murder mystery. It was the first one with a gal, and I can't for the life of me remember what the name of the show was. I'm sure it's probably someplace in one of your books. Then I did... Uh, Oh, batches and batches and batches of dailies where I was did the lead. At one time, I think I was doing four of them. I did Mary Marlin. I did The Woman in White, Guiding Light, Today's Children, Arnold Grimm's Daughter. You name it, I was there in one capacity or another. And then in 45, radio was failing very, very badly in Chicago. Everybody was making the move to either Hollywood or New York. So I went to New York, was offered three shows there and the stage play, and my husband said, no, I don't like New York. I don't want New York. And we came out here instead. Then I did all the shows out here. You know, you're making this assignment sound real attractive, Commissioner. Dunleavy narrated. The debut was called Relief Supplies. The initial summer run ended on August 20th, before NBC picked up the series again in February of 1950. Steve, I don't know whether he has anything to do with all this or not, but if he has, now watch yourself. Yep. Well, looks like I got a real honey this time. You did, but it's vital to us that those relief shipments get through. Trouble usually starts from empty stomachs. Yeah. That's all. You've got your assignment, Steve. Your plane leaves in two hours. Good luck. Eduardo, this is Dino speaking. The American just landed. See? Report it to the chief at once. Ah, senor, taxi, huh? You want a taxi, senor? Yeah. Hey, uh, look, driver, you know your way around Messina pretty well, huh? you. <laughs> I live here most of my life, senor. At the age of three, I was brought here from Palermo. So I know every house, every street, every building, every bar. Yeah, every... yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know your city. Now, take me to the Throp Foundation Warehouse. Again? Throp Foundation Warehouse. You know where it is? Throp? No, no, Throp. It's a... Ah, well, never mind. Just take me to the Rienzi Hotel. I'm sure you must have heard of that. Why, sure. I'm going to put your baggage in the car, senor. Hello. <clears throat> Sorry I'm late. Hmm? <laughs> You're not late. You're just in time. I heard you inquiring for the Throp Foundation, so you must be Ralph Gillette. I'm Helen Collier. I was supposed to meet you here at the airport, and I... Hey, look, I'm afraid there's been a mistake. My name's not Gillette. It's Mitchell. Steve Mitchell. Oh, oh, I, I thought you were the one I was supposed to meet. I'm sorry. <laughs> Believe me, I'm sorry, too. Couldn't we just pretend I was? I'm afraid Mr. Archer wouldn't understand. Already I don't like Mr. Archer. Don't even know him. Who is he? My boss. He's in charge of the foundation's office here in Messina. Oh, wait a minute. Do you work for the Throp Foundation? Mm-hmm. Mr. Archer's been expecting a new man to fly down from Rome, uh, Mr. Gillette. I thought you were he. Oh. I wonder if you'd tell me where the foundation office is. I'm a foreign correspondent, and I'd like an interview with your boss. Oh, well, I could go with you and show you where it is, because it doesn't look like Mr. Gillette is on the plane anyway. Fine. I have a cab over here. You say you're a foreign correspondent. I suppose you want to do a story on the stolen relief shipments. Yep. Well, good luck. Mr. Archer doesn't want any publicity about it. Thinks it would have an adverse effect on donations from the States. Oh, well, here we are. Uh, pardon us, gentlemen. Uh, si, signor. Eduardo, out of the man's way. Of course, your pardon, signor. 
Well, I'll see if I can get some kind of a statement from him. Are there just the two of you in the Messina office? Yes, right now. There were three of us. Paul Wainwright was the third, but he... Well, he got fired a few days ago. At the Hotel Rienzi, no? No. Trop Foundation. Tropa? Tropa? Oh, Via Delgada. Oh, si, senorina. Hey, you must have the magic touch. Uh, this Paul Wainwright, he was fired by Mr. Archer? Yes, three days ago. Senor, you ready, huh? See. Did you hear what the senorina told the driver? See, si, Eduardo. Via Delgada. That is the address of the Throp Foundation. I will report it. You follow the American. Ford Motors signed on to sponsor a few early shows, but Dangerous Assignment didn't find sponsorship until Wheaties. They were pushing their big parade in the summer of 1950. But even then, it was just for the short term. The program ran in the States until February 13, 1953, but never achieved widespread fame. A syndicated version was produced the following year in Australia, with Lloyd Burrell as Mitchell. I see. Well, in that case, could you give me an off-the-record statement about it? I might, if I were sure it would be treated as such. I'll make a deal with you. We won't break the story unless or until the thieves are rounded up. Terror on the air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. (laughs) Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Airing out of KNBC in San Francisco was a groundbreaking lady detective anthology named Candy Matson. Produced, written, and directed by Monty Masters and starring his wife, Natalie Masters, Candy Matson debuted on Saturday, June 26, 1949. It ran at 8.30 p.m. Pacific time on NBC's West Coast Circuit. Natalie was from San Francisco and began her career with the Wayfarer's repertory of the San Francisco Little Theater Group. This creative couple were locally successful and had nearly 15 years of experience by 1949. Henry Leff was police detective Ray Malice, with Jack Thomas as Rembrandt Watson. And each episode began with a telephone call. Hello, Yukon 28209. 
Yes, this is Candy Matson. Did you ever know a girl private detective? Perhaps not. They're pretty rare. Well, we've got one. Candy Matson is the name. And she's both pretty and rare. Figure? She picks up where Miss America leaves off. Clothes? She makes a peasant dress look like opening night at the opera. Hair? Blonde, of course. And eyes? Just the right shade of blue to match the hair. You're expecting more? All right, let's meet her. She's on the phone now. In her penthouse on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco. Hello, Candy Matson. Well, bless my ever-loving little old serial number, Candy Matson. Watch out how you go tossing your serial number around, Pally. Who is this? Candy, I hope you remember me. This is Sergeant Kenley down at Fort Ord. Kenley the Galan, uh-huh. the G.I. who filled my slipper with beer and drank it. <laughs> That's me, the poor man's Diamond Jim Brady. Sure, I remember you. I met you when I was down at Fort Ord with the USO. What's on your mind, Kenley? Wait a minute, I'll put it this way. What's new? I like this is new. We're having a big shindig at the Senior Non-Commissioned Officers Club tomorrow night. Uh, you were elected as the girl most likely. Finish the sentence. Okay. As the girl most likely to be the queen of a ball. Oh, Kenley, you mad lad. I'd adore it. But what would I do for a chaperone? A what? Don't play dull. You heard me. Oh, 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 sure. Well, why don't you bring your mother? Wonderful idea. And I know just the fellow. Roger, Kenley. I'll report to the orderly room sometime tomorrow afternoon at Fort Ord. The masters leaned heavily on their prior associations in the Bay Area. Plots were also reliant on the audience's knowledge of local San Francisco. That's the way things happen with me, so casually. I'm at home on Telegraph Hill overlooking San Francisco Bay, polishing a few old sapphires, when the phone rings. Sounds innocent, doesn't it? But uh uh-uh. I ran into two rather grisly murders in Monterey. Want some details? Listen. When I told the sergeant I knew just the fellow to be my mother, I met my old pal Rembrandt Watson. In former days, Rembrandt, an A1 photographer now that he doesn't imbibe, used to see double by noon, triple by four, and complete darkness by eight. One night, the darkness became too dense and he suddenly saw the light. That's when he threw all his bottles out the window. Of course, he was arrested for disturbing the peace, but he hasn't touched a drop since. And when I mentioned Rembrandt as my chaperone, I wasn't fooling. He's been like a mother to me many, many times. He was just back from his vacation, so I got in my car and drove over Powell and down California Street. At Grand Avenue stands Old St. Mary's, and on the bell tower just underneath the clock, there's a sign that says, Son, observe the time and fly from evil. I'd seen it before, but somehow that afternoon it had an added meaning. I parked my car and went across the street to Rembrandt's apartment. Candy. Rembrandt, you old dear, how are you? Wonderful, just wonderful. Darling, you're looking simply grand. Uh, Slice it thinner, Rembrandt. You've only been gone three weeks. Sorry, dear. You'll come in, won't you? Mm. I'm just having some tea. Won't you join me, Candy? I'd love it. It's all ready. Oogly, bleep, bleep, bleep. Bob. Wait a minute. What was that again? In case you don't know, Dove, that's Bob. Where did you ever pick up Bob? I was visiting a friend of mine last night, a professor of psychology, over at that institution across the bay. California? No, San Quentin. He's a penologist. He played some Bop records for me. Well, what do you think of Bop, Rembrandt? They say it's the latest thing. Why, girl, I can remember when they were playing Bop back in 1926. You can? Certainly. Only in those days they called it Vodododio, Vodododio, Do. Here's your tea, Dove. It's warm. Thanks. 
What brings you by this afternoon, Candy, dear? You. I've got an invite to a ball for both of us. How delightful. I'll get my Grand Marshal's uniform out of my trunk. It's not that kind of a ball, Ducky. It's just a dance for soldiers at Fort Ord. Fort Ord? That's down in Monterey. That's right. And I want you to go along as my chaperone. Candy, I'd really love it. Good. I'll pick you up at noon tomorrow. Oh, I'm sorry. I have an appointment at two. You run along and, and I'll get the Del Monte special. Okay, and I'll pick you up at the station in Monterey. Splendid, splendid. Oh, uh, by the way, dear, I'm just a little... Uh... Oh, sure, here. Take 20. Oh, no, no, not that much, Candy. <laughs> no, 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 yourself, I insist. Oh, I'm so glad you're firm about these things. Thanks ever so much. Not at all. Thanks for the tea, Rembrandt. I'll see you in Monterey. I gave Rembrandt a little chuck under the chin. He quivered his bushy eyebrows, and I left. If I was going to be queen of a military ball, I had to get some royal raiment. I picked up a mantilla and a strapless evening gown you had to hold up by sheer concentration and deep breathing. Then I had a quiet dinner for one, please, James, and went home and climbed aboard the Dream Express quite early. When I woke up, I had the nasty feeling that I had something to do. Then I remembered. I had a date that evening with Mallard. That's Inspector Ray Mallard of San Francisco Homicide. The nomenclature reads, 6'2", weight 190, nice features, smart guy when it comes to solving a crime, but when it comes to talking about us and the future, he freezes up completely. I got dressed and whipped down to the Hall of Justice on Kearney Street. Well, Candy, how's Telegraph Hill's greatest lady detective? <laughs> At the moment, Mellor, dear, I'm just between detectives. Kind of slow, huh? No, not slow. I just wrapped up a case. Now I want to take it easy for a few days. I've got news for you, Candy. Such as like what? Such as like I can't keep our date for tonight. Oh, Mallard, I'd been counting on it. I know, Candy. I'm sure sorry. <laughs> but how did I know this guy was going to do what he did out in the Taraval district? Playing straight, I say. What did the guy do out in the Taraval district? He parlayed a sudden impulse into a seat in the gas chamber. How so? He done in his old lady. Mallard, don't talk like that. Okay. He ostracized his wife from the world of the living. With a pipe. That's better. Over the head. I get the picture. Anyway, I've got news for you, too. And yours would be? I'd have to break our date tonight anyway. Uh-huh. I just knew I was going to get stood up. And tonight's the night that Tex Acuff is playing in Loves of Laredo. Candy, it's Acuff's best movie. Acuff will just have to keep his chin up. You're busy in the Terraval, and I've got to be at a dance at the NCO club at Fort Ord. Oh, that's right. I am busy tonight. So you're going to Fort Ord, huh? Mm-hmm. Weren't you there a couple of times during the war? That's right. With the USO. That same sergeant still there? The same sergeant. He's the one who asked me tonight. Now, this calls for drastic action. Come here, Candy. Mallard. Unfortunately, because NBC was sustaining production costs, they moved the show around frequently. They'd often air a program a day or hours ahead of its scheduled air date, apologizing later to the growing body of Candy Matson fans. Then part of me floated back in and picked up the rest of me. Candy solved almost 90 cases. The series ran until May 20th, 1951. Then I saw I didn't have my purse. I went back and got that. Keep this up and you won't even get past Market Street, let alone a Ford Ord.
This brings us to the end of our look at some of the shows NBC launched in the winter, spring, and summer of 1949. It isn't, however, our last look at the year. It's Light Up Time, presented by Lucky Strike. Night and day. What I do with my life is of my own doing. I live it the best way I can. I've been criticized on many, many occasions because of acquaintances and what have you. But I don't do those things to have anybody follow me in doing that same thing, is what I mean. Do you think your boiling point is low? Not anymore. It used to be. I think that comes with a normal growing up and the way of living, friends, people with whom you become acquainted. This is FS for LS, Frank Sinatra for Lucky Strike. And remember, friends in all the world. I've always admired people who are gentle and who have great patience. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars and let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars. Next time on Breaking Walls, words, it's the fall of 1949, and Jack oh Benny, Edgar Bergen, Red Skelton, Bing Crosby, George Burns, and Gracie Allen are now all on CBS. Most of NBC's new shows have flopped, but they're not ready to give up. They'll up the ante and give new shows to stars like Vincent Price, Ronald Coleman, Anita Hume, Charles Boyer, and the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Billboard magazine, Broadcasting magazine, and Radio Daily. On the interview front, Virginia Gregg, Loreen Tuttle, Herb Vigran, Mike Wallace, and Don Wilson were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Parley Bear, Lillian Bayef, Herb Ellis, Betty Lou Gerson, Virginia Gregg, and Peggy Weber were with Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. Arnold Stang was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin were with Cedric Adams. Fred Allen was on Texan Jinx. Donald Voorhees spoke for Allen's biography and sound. Jack Crucian was with Jim Bohannon. John Daner with Neil Ross. William Conrad with Chris Lambesis. E. Jack Newman was with John Dunning. And Frank Sinatra was with Walter Cronkite. Selected music featured in today's episode was... Taking a Chance on Love by Helen Forrest, The Pavane by Steve Urquiaga, Lenore Overture No. 3 by Ludwig van Beethoven, and Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendages, 
two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, Episode 112 of Focus on Radio Business and Programming as we head into the fall of 1949. This episode will be available beginning February 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until February 1st, 2021, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 111. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year. You.